Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. I'm Michael Lutz. And this is a show where uh, we read books that are complicated academic books and try to break them down and have a good time talking about them, in case you've never listened to the show before. And today, Michael, we are uh, talking about Susan Laxton's Surrealism at Play. Yeah. Yeah, does it have a... It doesn't. No no subtitle. Nope. It's you just got to be on board. Mm-hmm. You just got to be you like, oh, surrealism, know. play, all right. I guess, I guess that's where we're going. It's very new. It's from 2019. I think the end of 2019, mm-hmm. uh, if, if my memory serves, um, from Duke University Press. Uh, I didn't do the biographical research on Susan Laxton. Well, that's great because I did. Uh, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. So Susan Laxton is the Associate Professor of Art History at uh, the University of California, Riverside, and author of Paris as Game Board, Man Ray's Objects, which is uh, um, a a kind of uh, gallery printed, like special collection uh, of... Well, we'll talk about it, actually. It's like, I, I assume it is parts of uh, what happens in the second chapter of this book, um, mm. which is about these specific uh, objects. It's like a, like, like a uh, I forget what those are called, but like they're academic coffee table books, basically. They're yes. like reproduction books that also have critical essays and things like that. Right. It's like um, a big book of these photographs um, with presumably her, her essay uh, operating as kind of a, either an introductory piece of material or it's, you know, spaced throughout and you get nice big um, printed reproductions of the photographs that she's talking about. Cool. And we're going to learn all about those. Um, Michael, why did we select this book? Well, uh, why did we select it in general, or why did we select it for right now? Uh, both. Okay, well, I guess uh, I I am under the impression we selected it in general. I should say you're the one who pointed it out to me. So I did. I was, I was perusing the Duke University Press website, because that's the kind of cool guy I am. <laughs> Just, I'm, I'm putting, putting on my Fonzie shades. I'm, you know clunking on the back of the jukebox there where we're playing some sort of music that you might hear in milwaukee uh what? it's just microsoft sam reading this book out loud uh text-to-speech <laughs> surrealism at play susan laxton mm-hmm. um so you you pointed this book out to me and i was like oh that seems like it might be interesting because uh you know one of the guiding principles of the show is doing things that are more or less uh, canonical, quote-unquote, game studies books uh, and mixing them in with things that are maybe stranger or might come at similar topics but from illustratively different angles. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this is a book of art history, just, you know, at the top. This is uh, not in and of itself, like, it's not explicitly a game studies book. It's not talking about video games or board games. Um, Well, Mm -hmm. it does talk about board games, but... From mm-hmm. the perspective of art history and avant-garde art history. So that seemed like an interesting perspective to bring into the show. And then I also wanted to read this book now because uh, it is coming straight after our previous episode on Flow by Chicksit-Mihai, um, mm-hmm. which we were not fans of. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do this book following that because... Uh, just to refresh your memory, if you haven't uh, listened to the Chicks in the High episode in a while, or uh, if you haven't listened to it at all, one of the problems with that book is that it has a 
very specific idea of how the human mind works and sort of how the human body works in in uh concert with the mind right there there's a there's a kind of ontological claim about what it means to be an embodied person uh at, at the bottom of of the argument of flow mm-hmm. um and this results in a lot of uh prescriptive uh kind of dictates about what is good behavior what is flow behavior what is behavior that's going to give you uh what the book what that book calls optimal experience this book surrealism at play uh is building off of the surrealist appropriation of psychoanalysis um and we have talked about psychoanalysis on this show before we we have differing opinions on its utility the cursed devil <laughs> psychoanalysis uh, made by that evil man sigmund freud <laughs> and his dastardly uh sidekick jacques lacan <laughs> so kind of, a, uh, kind of a bizarro batman and robin yes <laughs> Freud and Lacan is the bizarre Batman and Robin. Um, but anyway, uh, I decided that this... Well, I didn't... Yes, I decided this, I, mm-hmm. but which is to say I hoped this. I hoped that this book would be a good example of what happens if you have a similarly probably incorrect uh, idea about how the human mind and body work, um, but also don't have a lot of the... Uh, at, you know, fundamentally wrong, uh, a, a lot of the other fundamentally wrong conceptions that get built into flow, right? What happens if uh, we're taking a kind of theory of, of consciousness um, and doing something other than trying to optimize it in, in the language of flow, right? What, what happens if we uh, connect these two books along this axis and uh, how, do we, how do we make the differences useful? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think we'll get to it. I, I don't know if I think this is any more successful, uh, just, just to, you know, to lay out my perspective on it. I don't know if, if I think psychoanalysis gets there because, you know, I'm, I'm an outspoken critic of, of psychoanalysis and the way that it plays out in a lot of different ways. But I certainly think it's more interesting. Um, and more importantly, it is not about instrumentalizing or um, uh, comparing uh, different modes of like access to mind, right? So even if, and I think this is kind of what you're saying here too, but just to kind of state it from my perspective, um, if Csikszentmihalyi and psychoanalysis are both wrong, then psychoanalysis at least provides a uh, less violent and less destructive way of thinking about you know the mind and being wrong about the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if there are two equally wrong things in front of me, I think psychoanalysis is the the, the least evil <laughs> of, <laughs> of the two of those different things. Um, but 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 what I think is interesting too is that what we're going to get here in this book, like you said, art history book. Um, what we're going to get is a series of art objects and a series of statements made about art, particularly by Andre Breton, who's a very prominent kind of theorist of surrealism. He, he was a surrealist himself, but he was one of the people who was writing uh, extensively about the movement as it was happening and kind of positioning itself as a, politi- as a politics, as a way of approaching art, as a way of approaching life, all these different kinds of things. Um, and, and I think what we're going to get is a really robust way of seeing how um, taking ideas about how the mind works, theories of the way the mind works, and then trying to kind of put them through 
the uh, the mechanism. I mean, that, that's the language that gets used a lot here, right? Mechanism. Mm-hmm. Putting them through uh, the machinery of art production and then seeing what happens, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, what I think is... That, that's all to say, right? What I think is really interesting here and why I like the comparative that you've set up is that if flow out of Chicksecme High is incredibly prominent in game design, then we are living in an era right now, you and I and everyone who is listening, we are living in an era in which that theory of the mind has been mechanized into the games that we play. Mm-hmm. So if surrealism is about taking the ideas of psychoanalysis and making art with them and then seeing what happens, um, and, then, and then they lived in that from you know the 1920s through the 1940s, kind of depending on who and, and when, uh, then we are living in an equivalent period right now, but for Csikszentmihalyi. And so I think that what reading this book kind of at the end, and we'll come back to this at the end of the episode, I think it gives us a really interesting comparative politics of what are the politics of taking a theory of mind pushing it through mechanisms of art production and then creating art objects that you live with and, and interact with. Uh, what are the politics that the surrealists got to? Mm-hmm. And what are the politics that we ourselves live with under here mm-hmm. in these kind of equivalent processes? So um, I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I, you know, just to say at the top, I really enjoyed the book. I think that we'll talk about some, some of the nitty gritty of, of, of the thing. Um, you know, I think I have some, um, um, friction at certain points. Right. But, um, I think ultimately I, I, I found this book, uh, both really interesting, a really cool deep dive into something I know a bit about, but I only know, or I I know quite a bit about a thin slice of it, right. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's the best way of putting it, but surrealism was big and there were a lot of people working on it for 30 years, depending on who it was. And, um, weirdly enough, I, the best chunk of this I know, which is Bataille, uh, Lieris, uh, Calois, those are the people that broke away. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I kind of know even less about the, the, uh, the core of, of the thing, but, uh, that, that's me rambling about comparative theories of the mind. Um, how, how'd you find it? Did you, you know, do you want to spoil if you liked it or not? Oh yeah. No, I, I enjoyed this book quite a bit. Uh, I am... Uh, I, I maybe had less points of friction, if only because I was I, I was mostly approaching this as just like, give me something to work with, right? Something that I am not as uh, ipso facto opposed to as I have been to flow. Uh, and I was very interested in seeing how a theory of play can be used to talk through art history uh, mm-hmm. rather than game history. Um, absolutely and the kind of relationship between those two things too um which is talked about sometimes right um uh mary flanagan's critical play is Mm -hmm. kind of the big landmark of that within game studies uh john sharp's games of art is as well brian shrank's uh avant-garde video games um you know there, there are quite a few books i can think of that are about uh, kind of art at the edge of the game space uh but i think this is is quite different i don't know I don't know if there's a book like this necessarily in canonical game studies yet. Um, I, I would say just, you know, I, I finished reading it earlier today. In fact, actually pretty early this morning. We were recording in the afternoon. And I actually thought, when I got done, I thought everyone in game studies should read this book. Um, even if there's nothing in here that you think is uh, immediately applicable to what you study or what you think about or whatever. Um, one, I think it's just extremely readable, um, and it's really historically based, but, but the, but two, the, the thing that's more important is that, uh, this provides us, 
it would be difficult for me to read this book and then be doing some sort of game studies work and not think of an analog that you can find within the surrealist movement around play. Mm-hmm. Um, that there, was, there seemed to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, that was actually... And I, I, when I say it's surprising, I don't mean like, oh, I expected this book to be worse. Um, this is one of those very like pleasant moments where you... I came to this book wanting a theory of play that was going to, you know, come out of and be used to read through art history. And the robustness of that theorization of play went above and beyond my expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think, it, yeah, I think it would be difficult for me to write going forward. Obviously, I'm not going to cite this in everything that I ever write going, go, you know, and being like, oh, well, remember the surrealists, you know, mm-hmm. constantly. But it's really, uh, you know, I think that we've talked about this a bunch of different times on the show that uh, game studies from coming out of a lot of different disciplines, from having a kind of weird canon to it, uh, we often end up talking about the same five books over and over and over again. And uh, when we do that, and, and a product of doing that means that there are just certain, you know, um, when, when you're looking for a citation or when you're looking for an, an, uh, an example it seems like people end up going to the same exa- same examples or the same types of examples quite often, and I think it would be quite cool to just be reading a random game studies essay and they and someone say, well, actually, uh, this is really uh, this game that I'm writing about has an early precursor in um, uh, the uh, Eugene Ajet uh, photographs yeah. that we're going to talk about. These collections that Man Ray did, um, which I immediately wrote in my notes. You know, this is, it's Pokemon Snap, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but yep. we can we can get there later. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I feel like I'm being like weirdly effusive at the top, but I just, I really did enjoy the book, um, it, you know, as, as a full kind of thing, uh, to read. And I really found it readable, you mm-hmm. know, um, I, you know, it's working through history and it's kind of telling a linear narrative and that, that narrative is both, uh, compelling. It's, you know, uh, I, moment to moment, I was interested in what was happening, but it is not, um, uh, sacrificing complexity to get mm-hmm. there, which is, you know, it's a difficult balancing act. I think it's really well-written. I think if I wrote a book that was as well-written as this, I would be extremely happy with myself. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about Kant? Uh, well, we can start talking about Kant, except here's the thing. I didn't, I did not bother talk, putting any of the stuff about Kant in my notes. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to, but my, yeah, my first note for the introduction, uh, is, uh, we're starting with Kant, baby! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but you, because, you know, I, I, I like doing it. Uh, yeah, I mean, she just kind of starts with, um, um, w- with the kind of Kantian critical move, um, and, uh, the, the way that judgment works in Kant, right? So the way that judgment uh, is described in the work of Immanuel Kant is that it legislates among the faculties, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that you have things like reason, um, and uh, judgment is your capacity, this kind of freewheeling capability uh, to make decisions about the world and interact with the world and interact with kind of different cognitive frames, uh, to use a much more recent term for it, to interact with those things and then make decisions about them, judgments about them. Um, and, you know, if you know anything about Kant or if you know anything about race, this is deeply bound up in a history of philosophical racism. Uh, Kant specifically uses Africans in order to talk about who doesn't have access to judgment. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think we can never mention Kant without mentioning that that is both incredibly hyper formative 
uh, for the way that we think about basically everything involving aesthetics, but also is based on um, pretty pretty uh, uh, deep philosophical racism. You can read Fred Moten's work um, on this uh, if, if you're interested. Um, but we start with that, right? And this is where a lot of people do. Uh, we've already heard before in some of the other books we've read, uh, the kind of move to Schiller. Um, that's very similar to the Kantian move. And we do that. Uh, she, she grounds it all in Kant in order to say, this is our basic idea of how judgment works. Uh, now we need to jump way forward 200 years in the future or, or past that, uh, 150, 200 years, uh, in order to talk about psychoanalysis and the way that it kind of reconfigures or builds on the Kantian project. Um, I, th I think I'm going to hand the whole thing over to you. <laughs> you, you think? Well, I can never be sure, can I? <laughs> okay. Um, psychoanalysis. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, so the, the thing about psychoanalysis that is super important, and uh, of course, psychoanalysis doesn't come up here just randomly, right? Psychoanalysis has to be here because the surrealists as a movement are responding to psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And what psychoanalysis does uh, that is important is it, it invents the unconscious, it invents this idea that uh, people have thoughts or experiences or some part of their mind to which they do not have direct uh, kind of reflective access. That there are things that we do that we don't understand, that we don't always have good reasons for doing the things that we do, right? That, that, that there is... Um, sort of complementary to to the Kantian reason that's going to allow us to make judgments we have uh you know this this unconscious thing this this embodiment of irrationality that is going to uh depending on who you are right at least for the surrealists at, at first it becomes about uh the possibility of accessing the mechanism of thought itself mm -hmm. right like if, if your thoughts are things that, if, you, if your conscious thoughts are things that, like, bubble up out of the ooze of your unconscious, uh, the Surrealists ask, well, what does, what does thought that has not been, uh, that, what is thought that has not been strained through consciousness look like? So for, so for people uh, who don't know anything about this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, can, can we... Can I ask you like a few questions about psychoanalysis? Go some ahead. Simple, get some simple answers because I think it will be really helpful for for the uh, the the average non psychoanalytic. So if the unconscious is just down there and oozing and mm -hmm. hanging out, what what would we call that in psychoanalysis? What what's this kind of like primordial state? Right. That, so uh, that a person has. Uh, the viewer listener. Actually, you're not a viewer listener. You're just a listener for the show. Uh, yeah. The listeners probably heard these terms. Uh, that that bubbling ooze that is the id. It is just it is the um, the the purely like creaturely animal instinctive. Uh, you know the the just the thing the it right. Uh, and then of course above that we have uh, the ego, which is the sort of integrated uh, collection of conscious thought that represents the I. Right, like the I in the uh, the sentence, I did this, I did that. The idea of a subject, right, an integrated, individualized subject who it gets distilled as as a thought process from all of these, uh, you know, id uh, processes, and then of course over that we have the superego, which is the uh, internalized social rules. 
Uh, mm-hmm. And those, those, that's your, that's your basic Freudian schema, right? Id, ego, and superego. So there's the part of your thinking that you're aware of, that is your ego. Um, there is the part of your thinking that you're kind of taking in from the outside, uh, that you internalize, that is sort of the superego. And then there is kind of the, the naturally occurring, unformed, or sort of unsymbolized uh, instinctive thought uh, or cognitive processes that is your, your id. So in the interest of one more example, or, mm-hmm. or, or of an example, can, can I throw a, let me, let me throw a situation at you, and I, I would like you to read the situation through uh, ego, id, superego. Okay. Okay? This will be an easy one. I want some ice cream. Okay. All right? What, what's my, how's my id interacting with that? All right. So in this case, uh, the id is a, a kind of base, uh, ability to feel hunger right a kind of base appetite like you want uh your, your body right that this is this is uh the it is going to be very close to kind of bodily urges um without any sort of uh sanitizing filter your body wants food it wants to take in food it wants you know sweets or something maybe you just I don't know, maybe ice cream is just what's nearby, right? But uh, when we when we think of the id, we often think of the id as being um, appetite without consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Just the, the most of everything all the time, uh, the most pleasure, the most sort of enjoyment that I can possibly have, that's what I want. Uh, now, your conscious mind is, uh, you know, taking that impulse from your id, your sense that you want food and rerouting it into a specific object so oh i want something sweet i want something tasty i want something cold like i am going to choose ice cream uh and then your super ego is going to be the thing that says um i don't know i am going to i'm trying to think of like what would be the inappropriate choice here right like maybe you would buy your own ice cream rather than steal it (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, or or uh, I'm on a diet. Right. right. I'm not supposed to eat ice cream, and, and I'm uh, navigating that as part of my kind of uh, ego process. Right. right. Then, then, then you, yeah, that's going to reroute you and be like, check out your frozen yogurt. Exactly. Right. So, so there's kind of a social system, this conscious system, and then this bubbling under, under system. I'm going to ask you one more hard question, Michael. This okay. one's harder. Okay. Um, it's not I want ice cream. It's I'm enjoying Pac-Man. I'm having a good time okay. playing Pac-Man. Yeah. Can, can you give me uh, okay. id, ego, super ego on that one? I did not I did not know if there was going to be more than that. We're going no, to have to do... no, no, okay. no, no, no. Yeah. Um, so this is where psychoanalysis gets really, really uh, complicated um, because there is not in it, on its face, there is not some sort of uh, animal appetite that is clearly being met by you playing Pac-Man. Um, now, we could manufacture something here, right? And I would say, like, the, the most common version of this is, like, uh, um, people, like, this is where you get into, like, your bio-truths, right? This is where psychoanalysis mm-hmm. uh, basically uh, lays a... a a garden bed for a lot of really regressive assumptions about like who people are and what they want and sort of like what what is a human being um at its core so one one argument here might be like human beings are hunting animals and they enjoy challenges and um you know sort of the feeling of risk or threat or uh, something like that 
Um, but we live in a society where this type of naturally occurring sensation is not something that is open to us. Very Like, I, I am today, right, I do not go out and hunt for my food very often, nor for the most part, I think, am I being hunted for food. Um, however, psychoanalysis would... Uh, intervene here where you're playing Pac-Man and be like, this is kind of a uh, fictionalized or uh, dreamified because psychoanalysis is all about uh, sort of the the ways that dreams and narratives and sort of the stories that we can tell about the world and each other um, are attempts to work around blockages in our material circumstance. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, people in general like this feeling of, of threat or of overcoming challenge or what have you. And so we invent loads of pastimes that allow us to do this. Like, you know, so in this way, uh, all of sports, athletics, right, team sports become a kind of redirected uh, aggression. Um, and so in a similar way, Pac-Man becomes this kind of... Uh, way for you to as as still being uh, an integrated egoistic person right you're not devolving to the realm of uh being an animal being hunted or uh you know just hunting for your own subsistence uh you engage in kind of this fantasy uh where you can redirect all of these ugly feelings into a situation that is abstract fantastic uh and still kind of satiates those emotional needs uh, and, you know, gets your heart rate going or whatever, makes you really good at navigating mazes uh, without having to engage in actual blood sport or something mm-hmm. along those lines. So you got all those bubbling feelings down there and the the bubbling feelings get to work themselves out in this kind of daisy chain or this kind of mimetic system of Pac-Man in front yes. of you. Yes. Okay. What about the ego? So the ego is the part of you that is thinking like are these ghosts going to get me right how do i get through how do i learn this system uh where 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 are the rules like what are the things i can do here what are the things that i cannot do here uh especially if we're talking about like a game that is like a video game not something you're making up uh yourself or you're making up your own rules uh the ego is going to be the the person who chooses to play you know pac-man rather than asteroids Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, and what about superego? Mm. Superego is uh, the thing that sort of puts the block in place that stalls you from uh, working out all of these feelings. Let's say uh, instead of being hunted or hunting ghosts in a maze like Pac-Man, um, from hunting your neighbors or other people. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or instead of, uh, you know, you're going to play asteroid instead of like going out and shooting rocks in your yard to see how how many times you have to shoot a rock until it breaks, right? Uh, all of this kind of like free floating, uh, usually aggression, right, or or some sort of aggressive feeling um, or anxious feeling, uh, is going to get rerouted into these more harmless pastimes, right? That's one of Freud's fundamental claims um, about civilization and about culture, that we come together, we band together into social units, and as part of like the, the sort of price we pay for existing in a social system is giving up on direct access to certain animal instincts or needs. Mm-hmm. 
So, so if we were to take, for example, the way that you just laid out the, the superego, and we go back, right? You know, we, mm-hmm. we flash back to the King of Kong, mm-hmm. right? Psychoanalysis then explains the whole operation, right? Steve Wiebe and, and, and the, the film kind of leans pretty hard into this, right? Steve Wiebe is able to kind of sublimate all of his big, broad, difficult life desires into Donkey Kong. Yes. And, and is able to be successful there. Uh, and that's part of the, the narrative of the thing. The the structure, and I think maybe you even said this in the episode, or if not, we talked about it. The structure of King of Kong is psychoanalytic mm-hmm. uh, at, at its core, the documentary itself. Yes. Um, okay, so hopefully these examples are helpful for people that, that there are kind of these three different, it's kind of a, tri, it's a tripartite system um, of, you know, at its core, bubbling primordial ooze of thoughts and feelings and desires that that we don't really understand and then the ego the the beginning of the understanding of the self and then the superego the thing that puts pressure on all of that and structures it in a, in a social or a broader way by the way this is also Kantian judgment we don't have to go to psychoanalysis for this but uh <laughs> in, in any case uh but that is the reason we're laying that out and the reason i'm saying that and michael thank you so much for for answering my questions um, I wish I wish that uh, this were a video uh, podcast because then I would have had like uh, um, uh, Jeopardy, like a Jeopardy board and be like, mm-hmm. Boom! Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, reveal it to you. But uh, the reason that going through this is that literally on chapter two, we kind of have to know that of this book, at least the sketch that, that Michael just provided for us. We, we kind of need to know that much about psychoanalysis to understand how the surrealists are using psychoanalysis. Mm hmm. Um, because they think it's uh, that play is access to the unconscious, right? Yes, right. Like the the thing that the surrealists want, or like they they want a couple of things, and they'll disagree among themselves about about various niceties here. But one of the things that unites the surrealists is their interest in that bubbling, uh, oozy part of your your thought process, right? How do we evidence that? How do we get at that? How do we let that thing? Uh, take part in the artistic process uh, if art has been understood uh, sort of in this post-Kantian way as about the exercise of the of the artist's judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. absolutely. So so if if art is intentional and the unconscious is by definition non-intentional, right? It's mm-hmm. before the notion of intention. It happens in you before you can intend anything. Then you know they're diametrically opposed. You you can't do one without passing through the other, um, except may, maybe you can <laughs> <laughs> uh, by using by using play. Um, you know, people. Another way of phrasing this, and this comes up later in the book, but it might be helpful if if people you know that this initial claim is kind of a sticking point. This is all predicated on basically the same idea as the Freudian slip. Yes. Um, uh, do, you, do you want to explain the Freudian slip? So the, the Freudian slip is uh, what happens when Freud takes his idea of how the mind works and he applies it to language. Uh, so the, the, the Freudian slip uh, is the idea that when you misspeak, uh, when you are saying something and you accidentally say the wrong word, uh, you are, it's not just a mistake, right? Like, Formally, yes, it is a mistake, but the mistake is not innocent. The mistake encodes meaning that uh, has a kind of um, unconscious uh, register. So the, uh, I mean, one example, right, is uh, if you 
are a kid in school and you accidentally call the teacher mom. <laughs> right. This was going to be my example. Yes. Right. <laughs> it well, is the primal, the primal example. Right. Well, because I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty accessible. Right. I think this is mm-hmm. if it, not, not that everyone has done it, but I think everyone has like maybe witnessed it. Right. Or heard about it when you're a kid and you're in school and you're talking with the teacher and you're like, it's totally normal. Right. It's not even like a teacher you particularly like or have any particularly strong feelings toward anyway. You're just talking with the teacher. You're asking about an assignment and they're telling you, yeah, this, that or the other. And then you say, yeah, sure. Thanks, mom. And like everyone dies, goes dead silent. Uh, But what Freud would say right about these moments is that it wasn't just a mistake. When you called the teacher mom, it wasn't just because like your brain is broken or something. Um, Your brain, like what is happening is your mind is associating the teacher with your parent uh, because in, in a kind of unconscious way, right, you are aware of them both as caregivers. And you have similar feelings towards your teacher that you do towards your mother. Uh, now, like, the specifics of how, what, like, what those specific feelings are, right, is up for interpretation. That's something your therapist is going to figure out with you. Uh, but the, the Freudian example, right, would be you when you call your teacher mom, you are not doing it by accident. You are doing it because there is some sort of actual similarity uh, sublimated in your day-to-day life that is peeping through, right? Your unconscious uh, assumptions or your unconscious associations are slipping through the cracks of your ego. Absolutely, because your your ego knows the difference between your teacher and your mom, but your unconscious only knows its connective capacity. It only knows relationships. It only knows feelings and and not thoughts, right? Or not not cognized thoughts. And so it sees those two figures as functionally the same because your relationship to them and your feelings about them are at least in this one instance mirrored to mm-hmm. one another. Um, and so that means that uh, the unconscious allows you to do all kinds of weird stuff if you, like the surrealists, try to figure out how to short circuit it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the most or a big chunk of the, the rest of the book that we are going to talk about and the methods that the surrealists talk about are going to be basically ways of inducing Freudian slips across a lot of different media. Yes. Uh, you know, how, how do you how do you grab it? Um, This is a quote from page two that I thought was uh, really helpful. Uh, Psychoanalysis and the priority it gave to unconscious motivations fueled their efforts, the surrealists. But it was play that gave them the ability to represent and disseminate their disdain for instrumental communication and action for what the ludic offered was a means without ends, gestures and actions and ways of relating that didn't know their aims and couldn't predict their outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so what Laxton's doing, and I think this is a record, Michael, that we are 40 minutes into this mm-hmm. and we have gotten to page two. Yes. I, I feel like it's got to be a record. But but what Laxton is doing here is saying that the surrealists grabbed onto play as an idea, as a concept, as a mechanism in order to facilitate those Freudian slips. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the, the whole book. Put my hands together, turn this thing off. I'll see you later. <laughs> yep. Bye. Thanks for thanks for tuning in to the Game Study Study Buddies. Um, but but yeah, I mean that that kind of is the the gist at least of of the intro. But I know there are a lot of cool little pieces, and I know there are parts that you're super excited about here, and there are parts that like the Spiel Rom that that we actually really need to talk about. So so I I feel like I've been directing the past twenty minutes. Where do you want to go, Michael? 
Yeah, so uh, the the idea of Spielram is very, very important here. And this is an idea that Laxton is pulling out of uh, Walter Benjamin, who, have we talked about Benjamin before? We have. Uh, think, Benjamin's yeah. come up a couple different times, yeah. um, but, but just kind of lightly. Um, he doesn't have, I wouldn't say, a strong presence. I know uh, 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 Darshana Jayamain has... Mm-hmm. Uh, written and talked about it quite a bit talked about benjamin i know carly kasurik who whose book uh um uh gosh i'm blanking on the title um i could see the cover in the, my head the coin operated americans yeah coin operated americans <laughs> the I one we read see, for I the podcast see, yeah yeah we read it for the podcast i just couldn't come up yeah. with the title i could see the whole <laughs> object though um uh uh I, maybe benjamin doesn't come up in that book but has written about benjamin so in contemporary game studies shows up ian bogost of course has written about benjamin a couple mm-hmm. times but i think mostly it's come up by reference not as a deep dive uh or it's not not as deep a dive as laxton wants mm-hmm. to do right so uh benjamin is very very important here because uh he essentially is going to offer us an alternative term for the id um in in laxton's argument uh, we have already said that the Surrealists were interested in using play as kind of their the, the lever that like cracks open subjectivity and allows you access uh, to, to thought itself. Um, the, the question might be like, well, why even bother? Like, what does that matter? Uh, for Benjamin, uh, he develops this idea um, of, of Spielraum, which means uh, room for play. And here... Uh, Laxton is quoting another author, Marian Hansen, and I'm just going to mm-hmm. quote here. Uh, Spielraum is, quote, an open-ended dynamic of exploration and transformation that enlists the viewer in its game, seeking to turn the acceptance of things as they are into mobility and agency. That's on page six. Essentially what this means um, is that that moment of ambivalence in the Freudian schema. So when you call the teacher mom and this word mom that has a very specific meaning, mom is what you call the person who is your mother, right? Um, it has this very specific meaning. Suddenly it becomes untethered from like, you know, rational reality and it starts pointing in two different directions. It points both to like mom as mom, but also the teacher as caregiver. Uh, the, the, Spielram is the word that enters Laxton's argument here to provide a, a, a way of conceptualizing what the surrealists were hoping to pull out of the unconscious, right? The idea is that in the unconscious, before things are pinned down uh, in, in a symbolic regime, to, to talk like a Lacanian for a second, um, if everything's just kind of free-floating, bouncing around in the ooze of your unconscious... Uh, why is that like what transformative potential is there right when mm-hmm. when the things that when when the symbols that have been anchored in certain ways uh if we untether those and let them float around and recombine in novel ways uh what sort of uh thoughts and experiences are we going to produce i mean i guess the 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 follow up there right is that you know what do the surrealists think that they can do there the, the thing they want to do is like radically interrupt the question of modernity Yes, right. That's a great way of putting it. Uh, the the march of modernity, which is kind of the next term in this argument. Yeah. So the you know part of why Benjamin comes up, I think, uh, well, part of it's historical and that he's like in these circles and he's writing about these people when it's happening. This is the nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties. 
one reason Benjamin shows up is that, right? But the, the other reason, uh, Benjamin's very famous unfinished work, The Arcades Project, is cited pretty heavily here. He writes, wrote about play quite a bit in there. Um, you, you'll notice The Arcades Project, um, mm -hmm. meaning the kind of uh, early 20th century version of The Arcades, late 19th century as well, of kind of the, um, you know, think of like Coney Island, right? Mm -hmm. Or think of a, a, a fair, uh, lots of different booths, stalls, cellars, uh, things like that. But it's this kind of uh, massive collection of old and new and novel and, and uh, conservative cultural and all these things smashing into one another at one time. And Walter Benjamin was writing the Arcades Project to kind of get a handle on that. Like, what the hell is going on at the beginning of, you know, capital in modernity? Um, uh, meaning the kind of acceleration of technology happening at the beginning of the 20th century that uh, partially culminates in World War One and then the time immediately after World War One, um, and then eventually you know runs up into World War Two, right? So so that kind of time period. Mm -hmm. um, and so what the surrealists are after, right, or, or what what the the way that Laxton kinds of frames it is that the surrealists, at least in their statements, uh, want to be able to access the unconscious because accessing the unconscious allows you to kind of do an end run around or to avoid or to throw a wrench in the gears of this mechanized uh, increasing modernity. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time though, uh, and this is, this is the, the, the kind of fun part about it, they both are um, wanting to get at some other form of human organizational life. Uh, here toward the end of this, um, uh, toward toward the end of the uh, introduction here, don't know why I couldn't think of the word introduction, but somewhere here toward the end, she begins talking about there that this is specifically a response to Taylorism, um, yes. the idea that you can take a productive process, right? So imagine you know building a uh, a car, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is kind of the classic you know Fordism example of uh, you know um, I don't build the whole car if I work in a car factory, I'm not going to build the whole car. I'm going to stand beside you, Michael, and I'm going to put on the left front tire. And it's going to go down and you're going to put uh, in the back left tire and then it's going to go down and someone's going to put in the next part and the next part and the next part. And so I become hyper specialized and hyper focused on being able to do one tiny thing that never gives me access to the plenitude of, of craft experience that could be making and learning how to make an entire car. I become literally a wheel in, in the machine. This gets commonly talked about uh, and, and visualized in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times when he literally goes down into the works mm -hmm. of the of the you know whatever factory machine. I, I forget what they're making in the factory. That that there's this anxiety during the early 20th century of that happening. Um, so on one hand, this is all to say. On one hand, they want to get at the unconscious in order to kind of throw a, you know, a wrench in, in the gears of that to kind of discover some other ways of orienting their life or making art or whatever. But on the other hand, what they want to be able to do is use the mechanistic parts of modernity to see if they can push that, uh, the, the, the play function, this unconscious function, uh, they want to see if they can push that through into, into uh, a realm beyond what they could conceive of. Um, so it's kind of like, I mean, this, this is a, it, it's, it's a weird thing to think of without seeing the work, but, it, but it's almost like, um, what if there were a machine that could help you demonstrate uh, the most human part of yourself? I mean, that, that's kind of their wager here. Mm -hmm. can, can you use a process 
or a form or a machine to find the core of the human thinking being, you know, capability. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you begin to think on it and reflect on it, you've already hurt yourself. You're in the realm of the ego that we're talking about. You're in the realm realm of socially constructed thought, of of awareness, of self-awareness, things like that. So, for example, we're going to learn about several of these different games, but the exquisite corpse, right? Mm-hmm. If, if, if you've ever participated in that, common kind of icebreaker thing at this point, uh, which is a little <laughs> bit weird. Uh, it's weird to think of these, like, formal practices that were avant-garde and really interesting as, you know, I think like a little a party cor- game now. Oh, yeah, party game. We're like a, we're like a, a corporate orientation game. Yeah. Um, but, but for example, you know, the exquisite corpse in writing, which is like, uh, you know, you write a line of poetry and you fold it down and you pass it to the next person and they can't see it. And they write a line and they do it and they do it and you pass it around to 20 people. And when you get it back, you read it as one coherent poem, even though no one had access to it. And you mm-hmm. get these weird resonances. You get rhymes and weird things like that that you never would have thought of. That's using a machine, right? That's using a technical capacity, a form, a formula uh, in order to produce, to get at an unconscious that's happening in the room, uh, in, in the relationship to all of these people. So if uh, everyone is writing about romance, for example, even though no one has seen the words, well, what's happening in the unconscious of all of these people to make them think that and to to drum up these ideas of romance or sex or whatever? Right. And another way of thinking about this is that... Um, the, the, this specifically this relationship to to the mechanism or to the machine to the piece of technology uh, is to suppose that uh, if the the other sort of knock on effect of psychoanalysis and this is actually I think pretty relevant here uh, because and this is like this is how you this is the conservative critique of psychoanalysis. The conservative critique of psychoanalysis is that uh, it reduces uh, the human to an animal, right? Mm-hmm. An, an animal that cannot understand itself uh, and that is wholly subject to instinct and appetite at a level that it cannot access. In this sense, uh, psychoanalysis posits uh, a, a certain automatism inherent in the human organism, right? There, mm-hmm. are, there are things about our bodies and there are things about our minds that we do not understand, but we never, like, they nevertheless make themselves felt in the ways that we interact in the world, right? I don't know how uh, my lungs work, for instance, but they still keep going and that allows me to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, so the surrealists, uh, in, in this really interesting way, are trying to draw out the automatism of the human organism uh, by using the automative capabilities of, say, photography or the the exquisite corpse formula. Um, trying to use these two different forms of, like, in a way, right? It it leads uh, what we tend to think of in biological terms as the the automatic and instinctive with the uh, uh, the technological and deterministic. Well, uh, I mean, what would be an example of a technology that that allow that allows that to happen? All right, so um, this is good because it'll finally get us into the first chapter. But the camera, uh, the camera is a great example uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is probably I would imagine most people who are listening right now don't have any sort of qualms with the notion that photography is an art form that you have seen a photograph and you've been like oh that's a pretty photograph and that photograph is art uh of course everything has history everything has context and whether or not a 
photograph could be a piece of art at all, regardless of whether, like, regardless of what you're doing with it, right? Could uh, the process of photography produce something called art was a huge point of debate uh, early on in, in the history of photography. The reason being, uh, if, let's say I'm a painter, and I'm going to, uh, you know, paint some biblical scene or whatever. Perhaps I, you know, hire a couple of models and I make some sketches and I plan things out. But essentially what I'm doing is I am taking how I see the world as an individual and I am trying to reproduce that through my own uh, ingenuity. Mm -hmm. um, like, I am the person who is making these sketches and assembling these models and making sure my perspective is right and so on and so forth. And then when the time comes, I'm the one who's mixing up the paints and adding them and all that. Uh, if I'm just taking a picture, right, with a camera, um, I am putting all the stuff to, like, I am, I am, you know, pointing, pointing the lens in the appropriate direction and I am, you know, hitting a button or, you know, exposing a plate and the mechanism does the rest, right? The mm -hmm. The mechanism of the camera does not make any judgment about how to represent something. It just uh, is a reactive chemical process, right? Like, and this is, uh, this is, this is the grounds under which photography for a while is considered, you know, in incapable of producing art uh, because there is no element of human judgment to it, allegedly. Um, but nevertheless, right, like we can sort of go back and forth on whether or not like how much how much is uh, someone judging what they're putting in the frame and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, the the real point of contention here is that photography pushes the mechanism, the technology into the artistic process or into the image making process, I should say, um, more fully than it had been up until that point. So the surrealists in this, uh, to, you know, fully bring us into the, the first chapter, uh, one of the ways the surrealists respond to this, and specifically the surrealist Man Ray, uh, is through the... In, invention is, is, a, is a strong word, I feel like, um, of what is called the rayograph. Or if you've mm -hmm. ever taken a practical photography course, um, you've probably made these. They're called photograms. Uh, where you just sort of arrange objects on a, a piece of um, paper and you expose the, the, the paper and see what shapes come out. Um, that's sort of what this first chapter is all about, is the process by which Man Ray stumbles upon the ability to do this, and then how does he take what is essentially the kind of thing that happens by accident in your dark room and make it into art. Yeah, absolutely. And and if you, uh, I mean, you can always just Google radiograms, uh, you know, to get a sense of what these look like. Uh, or you can, they're on the cover of the book. The cover of the, this Laxton book is in fact a radiogram, but they are these uh, really interesting. I mean, I, I think they're interesting. Um, uh, you know, often they're springs and pieces of glass and lenses and all these different things that diffract and refract and, and block light in different kinds of ways. They're spaced backwards and forwards from the thing. So there's all of this kind of mechanical, well, maybe mechanical is not the right word. There's all kinds of very intentional placement of the thing. But importantly, the artist cannot see what the final product is going to look like until the final product is finished. Right. That's like the big the big difference here, right? So like, for example, um, if, if, you know, your biblical image you're talking about, right? Uh, uh, you know, sacrificing Isaac, 
that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If I'm painting that in, in 1550, I got to have that in my brain. Okay, what's what's it look like to sacrifice somebody? Is God there? Is God not there? I don't know. Is right, got to go back whatever? and read the Bible, figure out, you know, like, what were some other details that I might be able to put in here? <laughs> exactly. Uh, what kind of paint do I have access to? And what's that going to look like? And there are all these decisions being made, but ultimately, there's a hand that is touching a... Um, uh, a brush and that brush is going to be making movements that I'm going to be intentionally doing. And I'm going to see the whole process of that thing laying out, right? I'm going to see my initial color blocking. I don't know how they painted in 1550, but I'm <laughs> right. I can, I can uh, operate and change that a billion times between here and the final product. Mm-hmm. Um, and even with taking a normal photograph, right? I, I can choose where to put the camera. I can choose how long to expose it in the moment. There's some operations there. I can, uh, you know, by setting my camera somewhere and then pulling my head out from under the, the cloth and then looking at it, I can say, okay, this will be a storefront. Okay, this will be a family. Okay, mm-hmm. this will be a dog, right? I, I can make those decisions. The difference there, it, even though that's still a photograph, right? I'm still making some intentional decisions there, a lot of intentional decisions. Um, with the rayographs, up until the final image itself is in your hand as a completed piece of art, you can't know what that layering of springs and pieces of steel and glass and all that kind of stuff at different, uh, you know, kind of distances from from the sheet. You can't have any idea of what exactly that's going to be due. You can have some intuition about it. You can have some ideas about it. But ultimately, it is short circuiting uh, the process of making art and quite literally attaching uh the the it, it, you are just the human being in this. I guess is the best way of putting it. The human being in this is basically just uh like a a, a lens fixture, right? Mm-hmm. We are just a piece of the puzzle. We are not an agent in any kind of way, an intentional art making agent. Mm-hmm. Right. The um the the very explicit uh connection that Laxton makes is she says this is this is like an uh anticipation of glitch art. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because there is, again, you you don't really know when you have objects directly on your photo paper and you're exposing it, you don't know how that's going to turn out. You are uh, you are creating an image of something that could not, does not, did not exist. Right. And you are you are taking the machinery that makes photographs and you are using it to make something that is. A photograph in the sense that it was produced by that machinery but is also non-representational in in a deeply non-photographic way and this whole chapter i guess like to use that as kind of a, a springboard for talking about the rest of it um you know this chapter is called blur i don't know if we said that no it's called blur and it's named after F- flu i guess is how you mm-hmm. say it the french which is french for blur the ind- indistinguishment um uh and this is quote, it's on page 34, it's quote, this threshold moment that was neither Dada nor surrealism. So this is, these are pieces of art that are being made at the end of Dadaism, at the beginning of surrealism as an arts movement that lasts for 10, 15 years or so, uh, maybe longer, but, you know, really core for that amount of time. And all of the pieces of art that are talked about in this chapter are pieces of art that do that short circuiting, but almost as a... Uh, not as a full mechanism. These are not games or anything that are designed to do that, but they are kind of incidental processes uh, that deal with randomness in particular that allow for something like the unconsciousness to kind of spring forth. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of this chapter actually is dedicated to uh, Duchamp and talking about gambling. 
Yes. Um, and, and repetition. So, mm-hmm. for example, um, the, the way that this kind of gets talked about is that, you know, for Man Ray making a rayograph, uh, you can take the same objects and move them around a bunch of different times, and you're never going to make a better, quote-unquote, rayograph. You're just making more rayographs. There's no history to them. It's not like you're going to, and kind of purposeful in the method, too. It's, it's not like you're trying to get to the best rayograph you can make. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not trying to, uh, manipulate these objects around in order to perfectly replicate the Mona Lisa or to perfectly replicate the image of your friend's face, right? It's not representational painting. It doesn't have the same end goal as that. It's about kind of starting from, from limit point zero every time and seeing whatever the hell happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and Laxton attaches this up to gambling, which I think is really, really cool. And I'd never really read much of Duchamp on gambling. Um, but I like this. He's, uh, uh, I think Laxton actually says this, but it's uh, adapting Duchamp. It's on page 40. He says that gambling is specifically predicated on the idea of, quote, a refusal to learn. Yes. <laughs> Which I, I love so much. Uh, Kawa obviously shows up here a little bit too, but um, this is not the place where Kawa gets talked about the most in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, but but for, for the surrealists at this point, right, gambling... Uh, or, or at least the connection that Laxton is making to gambling here is that the art practice here and the way that we approach gambling are roughly the same, meaning that we understand the mechanism that produces results, but you can never get better at the mechanism. Like theoretically, mm-hmm. you can become a better gambler. But for example, if you're a professional poker player, you're not getting better at receiving cards. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're not getting better at the roulette wheel. Right, you become better at making types of bets, or you get better at reading your opponent, or you get better at you know bluffing them out of the game. Whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of this external system. But uh, you know, in blackjack, you don't get better at receiving cards. <laughs> you know, right. having cards given to you. Um, that that's not how how gambling uh, operates. And I think this is a really good point to just um, return to the the contrast that I wanted to make with the last episode and with flow, which is all about optimizing experience about mm-hmm. making like that is obviously Cameron and I do not believe that that is a thing that is sort of a, a noble endeavor. Uh, we think it's bound up in a lot of really, really bad assumptions. Um, but nevertheless, right. The, the, the point of flow as a thought, uh, as, as a philosophy was to make your, like find a way to instrumentalize your own thinking to make your experience of the world better, to make it optimal. And quite explicitly here, the surrealists are using um, this weird combination of technology and psychoanalytic theory and like art philosophy uh, to create something that I think uh, at one point Laxton calls uh, like certain means for generating uncertain results. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right yes. like taking like taking flow and just like blowing the the end goal off of it right the teleology the idea that we're supposed to be getting better no we're just we're just making rayographs right each rayograph is a rayograph uh there is not one like uh, you personally might like one better than the other right a viewer a, a person looking through these might prefer one to another but there's no sort of representational goal there's no uh thing that is attempting to be optimized here it is just sort of repetition of happenstance and chance yeah absolutely and yeah something similar to what you just said uh happens i think the last page of the chapter uh where she says that uh that basically at this point the surrealists believe that uh 
automatisms, these kind of, of uh, automatic or autonomic ways of creating art and creating types of experiences, that those are things that you can cultivate, mm-hmm. that, that you can in your life develop mechanisms for short-circuiting your way of thinking, for short-circuiting the way you experience the world, for short-circuiting what you think is good and bad, um, that you can kind of shock your thought. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a nebulous uh, politics to that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it seems like shocking your thought and, and uh, would, would be really good. Uh, sometimes that seems like that might be really, really bad. Uh, some people might call that trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a, you know, kind of a question of what the ends of that are and surrealism was never quite good at that, I, yeah. I wouldn't say. Um, uh, but I do like some of these other things here. So I, I, there are some great, you know, just to call out things I thought were cool here, uh, when she's talking about Duchamp talking about how chess is fundamentally random. Yes. Um, and, and that's something that we don't like, like, you know, the way we talk about chess and the way that we talk about games is that, or that a game like that, right? It's like, it's not. Obviously, there's professional chess players. They're, you know, they compete, all that kind of thing. But Duchamp said, you know, look, your opponent's just random. Like mm-hmm. the the chances, the things that your opponent does are purely aleatory. And apparently, he would play blindfolded chess tournaments where, <laughs> where both people, where both players were both blindfolded and they couldn't touch the board, <laughs> and they would play chess that way. Uh, which, which I think is pretty cool. I, you know, I think someone should, uh, you, I, you know what, you're all probably bored. Why don't you, why don't you do it? You know, get somebody on Skype, mm-hmm. get them on zoom. Yeah. Uh, do some blindfolded, blindfold chess. yourselves and play chess. Um, anything else here at this, uh, at this first chapter? Uh, no. Okay. Let's talk about chapter two. Oh, I, something I want to say here, I guess, sorry, really quickly at the end of chapter one, um, is that the uh, the the gender and racial um, uh, mm. uh, quality uh, or or uh, fact, the fact of of uh, surrealism is like really well represented here in the sense of like almost entirely men. Now, historically, that's not actually true. There are women who are involved in surrealism, but they are not the people who are writing all of these kind of position people pieces they were not the people who were most well represented and, and as such they just kind of don't show up here mm-hmm. um i can't think of any women who show up in the book uh although i don't know my women surrealists all that well so the, the uh, kind of deeply gendered the other thing too is that that there's an attachment that gets talked to about a little bit at the beginning of chapter two there is a uh an attachment to an idea that getting to the unmediated you know uh uh the unconscious into the, you know, into the deep mind that that connects us up and, and us in the sense of like, everyone can access this to a quote unquote, more primitive, uh, mm-hmm. mode. Uh, the word savage gets used quite often in surrealism and gets used in this book as well. Um, and so all of those things, just think about all the criticisms that we had of Calois, you know, in that episode of kind of relying on a, an idea of, uh, that there is like a core kind of, primitive uh human being and Mm -hmm. then there is wherever we are now um that the idea that the surrealists are trying to get to and this gets talked about later in the book too is that they are looking for the same eruption of the unconscious as the first person who wrote on a cave wall right like that's actually language used yeah i was gonna say and sort of like to pull this out of surrealism itself and like push it into psychoanalysis this is also like a psycho like a a racist but psychoanalytic uh view of society that uh uh like 
they're like the id is the most as being the animalist or the animalistic right is also the most primitive part of you and then like different societies are closer to that on the whole than other types of societies mm-hmm. uh so like there's this is this is in the air supply at this time this kind of hierarchical and structural racism um and it's, it's shot through a lot of the the um intellectual armatures of these people yeah and so like you know they exactly i think it's in the air supply it's the air that they breathe it's the the kind of uh, intellectual way of framing these arguments the the difference and i don't say that to be like well the surrealists are different than calois mm-hmm. and so all the criticisms that we said then don't apply criticisms still apply but the difference that that actually shows up in the final chapter of this book that we'll talk about in just a bit um the difference being is that calois explicitly says this is a way that you have to hierarchize society and the Surrealists say this is just a fact of life, that that, uh, that there were at some point people who drew on cave walls, and there are people now. And uh, there is obviously some sort of time relationship between us, and we want to short circuit or get rid of or uh, recognize the relationship uh, or, or the kind of core humanity that existed at that time and exists now. Right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's some sort of way of dealing with the world deep in our unconscious that is shared there you can see again how this all gets like uh, also adopted by the biotruths people mm-hmm. um you know that you were talking about before so that and i don't say you know that to apologize for it or whatever it's fundamentally racist at its core uh, because as you just said michael that gets built into a whole structural system of thinking about the world that's deeply tied to race and and, and uh, racial partitioning but it is different than the way that calwa talks about it mm-hmm. um, i mean calwa so, like quite specifically like makes his name as being the guy who's like ah the hierarchies are what we need to be working on here yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and Laxton, you know, talks explicitly about Kawa's break with the rest of the Surrealists and how he gets there. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, we got to talk about. So anyway, all to say, critiques are still true, but but we have to be very careful, I think, historically um, about saying all of them believe the same thing, as opposed to uh, there are strains of thought that are shared amongst these people, but. Some people take them in an explicitly racist and, and quite oppressive way, and some people take it as uh, kind of a matter of fact that they just have to work around. Um, that doesn't mean the assumptions are different, but it does mean that the politics that move from those assumptions are different. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think being a good historian means, and a good intellectual historian means, being able to separate those things out. You don't have to like either of them. I'm, you know, Again, this is not an apologetics, but it's an uh, analytic um, uh, importance, historical difference. Chapter two, Drift. Uh, This is also about photography in its own weird way. Mm -hmm. This is about real photographs, actual photographs. Uh, So Man Ray, our sort of the the character who emerges as our protagonist in chapter one. um, Mm -hmm. Man Ray uh, at some point becomes aware of a Parisian uh, photographer named uh, Eugene Atjet, who is... um, how to put this not particularly good or interesting like there's nothing remarkable about him as a photographer he's like a very workmanlike dude he's sort of old-fashioned he's using a a sort of like a a, he is intentionally using a kind of outmoded camera right that uh, requires larger plates so he's moving more stuff around paris and i'm not exactly sure what his business model is but it just seems like he takes pictures of monuments and places and people and he has a studio where he hangs these pictures up and people can just come in and buy them it's a it's almost he he was shutterstock 
Yes, right. Like I was gonna say, he's 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 uh like early twentieth century Shutterstock. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean that. So so if you're like, hey, I'm a new, you know, I got a new newsstand. I want to print up a bunch of uh, 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 postcards about Paris. You mm-hmm. like you go and talk to to Ajet, and he's like, "Hey, I got a shitload of photographs of monuments for you, bud. Mm-hmm. You want to see some some old new, you know, some old business fronts? I got them for you. I got a billion photographs here. Mm-hmm. You like mannequins? I got God, pictures man- of mannequins. He loved mannequins. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he just has all of this stuff. Uh, there's and, and and when I if if my estimation of him comes off as sounding pretty low, I want to be clear that this seems to be the 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 way that he is understood in the field, right? Like, this is kind of the way Laxton talks about him. This is the way that uh, the, the critics that Laxton is citing are, seem to be talking about him. Um, he's just this dude, sort of very broad, like, uh, you know, naive almost uh, approach to taking photos, right? Just, like, setting up his photos, taking them, taking a couple, and selling them to whoever wants them. So Man Ray comes across this guy somehow and he makes his own collection of Atjet photos uh that he 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 assembles them himself and when i say assembles i mean that in the loosest possible sense um because he puts them all in an album but he doesn't pin them down uh and there's no necessary order to them but the 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 sort of point of this chapter is arguing that what Ray is doing uh, is he is taking this massive archive that Atjet has and rewriting it into, like, by by making this album, right, by curating, uh, curating is a good word, by curating this album, um, Ray is rewriting these photographs into a surrealist text. Mm-hmm. Um, he's taking what is seen as a kind of and when I say naive uh, as a descriptor of an artwork, right? Naive in the sense that it is just like you point the camera at the thing and you take the picture. There's not a lot of attention given to necessarily angle or coloring. I mean, not coloring because these are black and white photographs, but, you know, lighting. It, it's it's um, very workmanlike, as I've already said. Uh, Ray goes through these and he assembles the ones that are interesting to him. And they end up, I guess giving a, a a stranger sense of the city than one might expect. Yes, because he he has no he photographs everything, and he has been doing it for years and years and years. And importantly, too, is that uh, Atjet um, uh, categor- did not categorize his uh, photographs by date. You know, he didn't categorize mm-hmm. it by location. He categorized it by subject. Mm-hmm. And so this dude would go out and, you know, he spent years and years doing this, just taking random photographs of whatever thing. And when he would go back to his shop because of the, you know, it's, it's on consignment quite literally, you know, he's just mm-hmm. taking photographs and hoping someone buys them. The idea is that if I'm coming in and I'm printing up my postcards, I say, Hey, uh, Ajet, I would like to have a bunch of photographs of windmills. You know, I'm making my windmill thing. And he would go, Oh, let's go to the windmill drawer. And he pulls them all out and you can see them all. And so, uh, Man Ray is able to take uh, these photographs that come from radically different time periods, but share similar subjects or same similar objects in them, mm-hmm. um, and then uh, put them beside one another. And so, for example, we were you know we were talking about um, mannequins, right? This is mm-hmm. how he finds all of these weird photographs of, of mannequins and putting them together, mm-hmm. and realizing that you know in a, a fifteen or a ten year gap, there's a long year gap, basically in the same place on the same street. There are 
uh, two sets of mannequins that are headless that are just like in a shop window mm-hmm. that are being used in the same way. And so the, it's this kind of like weird line being drawn across history and time um, of form and of what's, you know, of of imagery and aesthetic, which is similar to the, how they're thinking about the unconscious, right? That that it's this kind of connection drawing machine that uh, agnostic of material conditions or uh, or thought or intentionality or anything draws up similar mechanisms and similar um, uh, thoughts about the world. And so the photograph begins to, it steps in for, it's another way of mechanizing or another way of automating the unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the act of just collecting these things and putting them together is Man Ray's unconscious kind of spitting out this set of equivalences or ambivalences that he has with this this archive. Um, on page 77, this gets uh, called a, quote, form of play without end. Yes. Um, because it doesn't have a goal at the end. It's not as if Man Ray was trying to find every photograph of, of mannequins, or it's not like he was trying to find, you know, I don't know, one of every monument or one of every type of column that you could have in France over the, you know, the, or Paris over the previous 20 years. It's just whatever felt right. Um, which is interesting, right? Because it, to, to me, I immediately, you know, when we're thinking about just a random collection of photos, I'm thinking about something like Pokemon Snap. Hey, Michael here. I just wanted to let you know that if you like the work we do at Range Touch and want to help us continue to make cool content, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rangedtouch. As little as a dollar a month helps, and higher pledges will grant you exclusive access to show notes, premium podcasts, and previews of upcoming content. You can also follow us on Twitter at rangedtouch, and keep abreast of our video content, including Let's Plays and stream archives, by subscribing at youtube.com slash rangedtouch. Thanks so much for listening, and now, back to the show. So Pokemon Snap is is back in the news, and, uh, you know, it's a thing, but in, in photography games like Pokemon Snap, the idea is I gotta catch them all, mm-hmm. right? Like, we, we gotta get them all, we gotta collect, uh, you know, gotta, gotta fill out my book, gotta make sure I, I get everything, gotta make sure that I see everything I'm supposed to see. All that kind of stuff. Um, And I would say that that sets up a really good kind of formal distinction that is kind of nascent in the book right here, but becomes more important later between play, as in like a general sense of play, and a game specifically. Mm -hmm. Because the act of just taking photographs and then assembling them in, in a way that feels right or whatever, that's just free form play without end. But if Man Ray were trying to find, you know, trying to look through the archive and assemble all of the pictures of mannequins ever taken by Ajet, that's a particular kind of game. It's a gamification mm-hmm. of this art form, and it's not doing the thing that the surrealists want to be doing. Right. And the other thing to, to sort of keep in mind that I think makes um, Ajet very useful here is uh, because his photographs are what we would today call snapshots. They're not posed. There's not a lot of work putting into getting everything just right. These are the the sort of closest you'll get to kind of like momentary glimpses of activities happening on the street. And Laxton talks about this, how, um, you know, part of, part of the effect of these photographs, what ends up making them disorienting is that uh, they have been drawn from a huge catalog of just kind of essentially blandness. 
mm-hmm. but these are all like they they contain they can contain strange moments even though these are unstaged scenes there's one uh, photograph in particular that's um a, a bunch of people on the street looking at the eclipse Mm -hmm. Uh, so they're all wearing you know smoked uh, eyeglasses um, and they're all like looking up at the eclipse which is uh, of course is not in the photograph Um, but it's just this uncanny shot of a whole bunch of people standing in a crowd on the street wearing these black glasses all of them looking up all of their heads at the exact same angle and if you were just walking down the street, if you were just, you know, walking around doing whatever in Paris at this time, you wouldn't think twice of that because, you know, the the, the eclipse is going on. That's the thing that's happening. People are looking at it. Um, but the photograph, what the, the camera does is it excises that moment from context and allows you to dwell on it, even though in, in your normal day-to-day you would have kind of just written it out of your consciousness essentially right it's one of the million things you see every day that you decide not to pay attention to in the same way that a lot of Atjet's photographs are of um, storefronts and the way that the photograph has been taken uh the the sky and the street behind uh the photographer are reflected in the storefront glass it makes it look like you are both standing inside the store and outside the store at the same time which is a very common thing right that's how storefronts look but because of what the photograph does it takes that moment of vision and gives you the 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 ability to dwell on it and notice like the weirdness inherent in the things you see every day yeah and and that actually takes us i think closer because i you know we haven't really talked about what surrealism is even though we've been talking for an hour and a half um but because i think that uh we have a lot of pre especially in the united states we have a lot of pre-packaged ideas about what the surrealists are and i think that what you just laid out is a really good example of like what the surrealists were after um, yes. and how their works did that, right? Um, this is purely the work, the, the, simply the work of curation, right? The work of going and finding the thing that already exists and then putting it in front of you and saying, well, really think about the thing that is here that you would normally, like you just said, you, you might see it and then just it would go away. Or you would see it in context, right? The eclipse is today and you wouldn't think anything of it. Um, but by just taking something that already exists, this kind of image, putting it in front of you and asking you to have this kind of distance effect, right? Of of like, what the hell is the thing I'm actually looking at? And isn't that weird that that's part of day-to-day society, but it's so disturbing looking? That's what the surrealists are after, you know, this kind Mm -hmm. of idea, you know, what eventually turns into, you know, the beach beneath the street, um, you know, or, you know, uh, beneath the street, the the beach or something is the actual (laughs) phrase. But the idea that underneath every kind of moment of day-to-day life, there is this kind of teeming weirdness, just like, Michael, you're going to love this, uh, just like underneath your conscious thought. Mm -hmm. There's this teeming, bubbling uh, kind of unconscious. It's just kind of rolling around in there. Exactly. What I thought was really cool here, too, Uh, Beyond that is that uh, this kind of reading of the surrealist Simmel um, who maps the relationship between uh, urbanness, the the kind of development of the urban modern city and uh, how it constrains play. Mm -hmm. Uh, The argument basically being here that uh, the, the city, by putting people in such close proximity, 
under highly technologized conditions and under architectural conditions that are that are pretty uh, explicit. So, for example, uh, uh, Corbusier's um, transformation of Paris, right? You know, these mm-hmm. big blocks and the big um, uh, uh, boulevards, you know, these massive streets that are different from the, the old style streets. And it required all this destruction in order to do that, um, that that uh, fundamentally by kind of gridding off uh the play function, this kind of pure possible play that that invents game as like a thing Mm -hmm. that, that games at their core, even though look, we know that games existed beyond and and outside of that, but there's something for him about the proximity of human beings to one another that produces conditions under which we want to play specifically games. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I really like the, the idea of that, um, I don't know how well historically that holds up. I think it's a really provocative kind of claim. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other kind of big examples that happen here in this chapter, just to kind of move through it, is that they uh, end up talking about two other figures that the Surrealists really liked that kind of represented the kind of aleatory conditions of living in the city. Um, you know, this kind of like free play of having to deal with weird situations as they appear to you. And the Surrealists wrote about both of these groups. Um, I think this is actually extremely gross. Um, yes. Yeah. So one, one are the rag pickers who are basically people who live on the edge of the city and make their living by digging through the, the trash of modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're looking for usable or recyclable or resellable or whatever. This is obviously like, before the word recycle. Right. But, These are the people uh, who like at the, like in the, in the big commercial centers that are filled with people during the day at night when those places are cleared out and, Remember, there's not like a, a public sanitation or anything and in kind of the modern sense right now. Um, there's trash left all over all over the ground. And so you have a, a population of people who make their living by coming into these areas and going through what has been left behind and, and salvaging um, what they can. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, picking up anything they could resell or, uh, you know, left items or dropped items or clothing or anything like that. And so... That's that's one set of figures. They also talk about sex workers, um, and that that the sex worker basically is like the ultimate modern figure for the surrealists because mm-hmm. anything could happen to them, and they have to be infinitely flexible because anything could happen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both of these figures kind of become almost like. Um, uh, you know, for the grace of God go I, or the or they kind of become like um metaphorical figures i guess is the best way of putting it right that right that... they they do the thing where um on on the one hand right the surrealists uh like the rag pickers and the sex workers in in a sense that they're like valorizing them but it's a very patronizing kind of valorization yeah yeah exactly uh you know they 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 are not people so much as they are subject positions and they are subject positions that matter because uh we are all like them is basically the argument being made in living within the modern city we are uh, functionally them even though we don't realize that Mm -hmm. so i think you can read this in in uh in ways that are perhaps more um they it is ultimately attempting to be celebratory but it's incredibly (laughs) incredibly dismissive in doing so and it's just gross i think it's just Mm -hmm. a gross thing thing to do um but that's kind of how that chapter ends up we finally are getting to games Mm mm-hmm Chapter three, system. System. Um, 
we've already talked a little bit. This opens with exquisite corpses. We've already talked a little bit about exquisite corpses, uh, you know, the kind of the poetry version of it. But the other version of it that's really popular is the drawing version. Mm-hmm. Um, you you want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, the drawing version? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the the exquisite corpse, and we, we mentioned at the beginning, it's kind of interesting to have this entire chapter about this as an avant-garde on art form when it's the sort of thing that you would do in a in a you know corporate retreat today uh but it actually does come out of i think it's mentioned by laxton here it does come out of a parlor game where uh you have a sheet of paper and you fold it up and you fold so you let's say you have four people so you're going to fold the sheet of paper into four sections um and the person the first person however you decide who goes first uh is going to draw on the first segment of folded paper, and they are going to draw the head of the exquisite corpse. Um, corpse here means body, right? Not to, not not like necessarily dead body, but it, I guess it could, right? But like corpse is body, so the first person is going to draw the head. Um, they make slight marks into the second section of the of the folded piece of paper, um, and then their contribution is folded back or under in other in some other way hidden from the next player who is going to take their section and using the lines uh, given by the previous player as a starting point, they're going to draw the next part of the body. Uh, and they do the same thing. They leave um, little threads for the next person who draws and so on and so forth until you get to the end and then you unfold the paper and you see the the body that you and all of the other players have drawn together. And of course, it's like this grotesque mishmash of of various things, right? Um, And it's very delightful. They're they're fun. Um, uh, (laughs) Extremely sexual (laughs) when the the surrealists... Yeah, the surrealists, uh, basically, everyone's drawn some sort of refracted version of a nude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they they love getting a... uh, Any kind of sex organ... In mm-hmm. some form or fashion, it's going on there. Like, and so much that uh, most of them have like multiple butts. They don't draw on a butt. Mm-hmm. Uh, truly, that's what connects us all. Drawn butts. Yes. Um, uh, <laughs> the game ends up being important uh, for the surrealists. We're to quote Laxton here. Uh, the game is important, uh, page 138, quote, The game challenged... Enlightenment notions of coherent individuality, corrupting the image of the unified body along with the ideas of authorship and self-possession that were meant to deliver it. So calling back to the the earlier boogeyman that we conjured up, this idea of like rational judgment or the rational individual um, who is untroubled by the automisms of their physical embodiment or their unconscious processes. Uh, this game... Uh, puts at the forefront right makes a part of the it is a system for producing images and part of that system is predicated on uh you know shattering the notion of like there is one artist who makes a piece of work right when you are drawing something it is one person drawing it 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 forces multiple people to work together to draw something and at the same time um at the same time it lends coherence to the body that is produced produced in representation um the it is nevertheless like the body itself ends up being wildly incoherent right it is again um a kind of certain means for producing uh, uncertain results 
and it's incredibly resistant to to that kind of trying to like recoup it logically mm-hmm. um you can't you can't well maybe you can but it would be very difficult to look at an exquisite corpse and be like this is how a body is right um, you know it's just and maybe that's the reason there's so many butts all over it right it's just your unconscious like spilling out what part of the body you want to be drawing at the given time mm-hmm. um and well, again like, transhistorically yeah. people love butts they do um and this is important also because this is the chapter where um like up until now we've talked about how the surrealists were trying to access the unconscious uh that Mm -hmm. they wanted to uh kind in in some way right they wanted to represent unmediated thought and this is the chapter where the surrealists as a movement are represented as kind of realizing they can't do that yeah that um, because of uh, the, the the parallel to be drawn here uh, is, and the parallel that is drawn is with automatic writing, um, or uh, I believe it is, is it Masson? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, who who is talking about like uh, Laxton goes over this has he has this uh, sort of brief thing where it's like oh you know you draw some things on a sheet of paper uh, just sort of you know scribbling randomly and then when you look over what you have randomly scribbled you will see the 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 image that your unconscious was actually trying to produce so then you can go over and you can emphasize the lines that were um, at first just sort of like sketches and you can ignore the things that aren't important because they weren't really part of the actual like unconscious conscious process you were having and as as uh, laxton points out this is clearly just a kind of revision right it is um (laughs) making some random marks and then just being like uh it kind of makes me it it looks kind of like a whale i'm gonna draw this into a whale yeah this is where you know we were kind of talking about the relationship to like having access to this quote-unquote primal or whatever transhistorical um you know connective capacity of the unconscious here uh, we were talking about that, you know, a couple chapters ago. This is actually explicitly in this chapter where, as you said, the surrealists realize they can't do that. And Laxton is really clear, uh, you know, from the perspective of 2019, that this effort is bound up in a racial project. It's bound up in a in a uh, uh, cultural project, right? Um, and and is importantly, is not it doesn't happen, and it also doesn't short circuit ideology. Mm-hmm. Right. That that the way you think about the world, you can't just escape that by saying like, oh, I'm accessing the primal mind or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, that you are still embodying the more. I think she explicitly uses the the language of morals. You these artists are still part of the moral universe of the one that they live in. You know, play doesn't give you some sort of unmediated access to liberation or to progressiveness or whatever, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, forward or backward in time. Um, it is just a way of playing within the cultural bounds that we already exist in. And as you're saying, the, the surrealists realize that too, that like, oh shit, like, you know, these are formal mechanisms for producing something, but it is maybe not what we wanted or what we thought initially that we could do. Um, is this where uh, she talks about uh, Salvador Dali, not yes. just like not having any of it? Yes, yes. Uh, Dali, <laughs> the probably the most famous surrealist. Uh, but yeah, Dali, uh, who just, when he is playing um, these exquisite corpse games with, uh, you know, the four or five other surrealists or whatever, is just ignoring the lines that have been left for him and then, like, putting his signature next to his his part, even though that's not a thing you're <laughs> supposed to do. It's going to, it's supposed to be essentially anonymous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, and he's drawing, like, completely, uh, like, 
the picture that's in the uh, book, right? I'm pretty sure the section of that that's Dali's is he's drawing like a complete train station. Yes. <laughs> so it's like all these like weird lines of like pseudo bodies. And then in the dead middle of it, a train station with trains going in and out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's like what Dali contributed. Um, and I really like that. And he also, right, his, um, what we also get in this chapter is his account of what these sessions looked like. Mm -hmm. which is different from how the other surrealists talk about them, right? Yeah, how is that? Uh, Well, so like, you know, other surrealists are talking about how like, well, what we do is, you know, we just come in and we're having drinks and we're having a good time and we're trying to free up our minds and we're just kind of doing it, you know, and and hanging out and making it happen. And Dali, the way he explains it, he's like, well, you basically show up and it's a very serious affair. People are looking at every single thing you do. And he actually describes it like your hand is chained to the table um, <laughs> and, you know, being being forced to do specific things. So he gives it this very kind of that, you know, he's, he's obviously describing it. Well, I think he's describing it metaphorically. I wasn't there. But he is metaphorically basically saying that what appears to be and what is talked about is a very freewheeling, unconscious activity that that is undertaken without um, without ego, without concern for what anyone else thinks, is in fact a really overdetermined by the social situation it's in. Um, you know, it's not really a, a free experience. So uh, just like actually to, to, to pull this down in just a... What you just said is really nice because uh, it allows me to go back and pull out what I think is kind of the key paragraph of this chapter, which I'll just read. This is one from 139. Um, Tensed between regulation, volition, and chance, the game of Exquisite Corpse is best understood as an automatic mechanism meant to guarantee an unforeseeable outcome. One that, in its triple threat to the body, the subject, and the creative process, is neither benign nor productive. Every drawing emerging from the game bears the signs of this ludic process. Pause. Um, just to be clear, right? When you unfold this, right, you can still see the folds, right? And you look at it and you know, like, oh, five different people had their hands in this. So that's mm-hmm. what um, Laxton is getting at there. Um, and it reproduces its vexed structure. In this way, drawing, game, body, and subject are continuously reconceived at the intersection of chance and technology, two of our watchwords for this book. Um as dark avatars of Spielram that open up art production to a new set of unprecedented forms and processes and experience itself to a somewhat menacing critical ludic. Mm. Uh, the, the somewhat menacing there is why I, I uh, wanted to go back to this, because that's definitely, I think, what Dali is getting at, uh, or like at least the way you were reading Dali. This, um, the sense of the, the social scene of the game itself, uh, which in Laxton's estimation... Uh, becomes uh, I mean, essentially right. Uh, the, this chapter ends with Laxton talking about how the exquisite corpse gets sold out, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that uh, eventually um, is it is it Breton actually who spearheads this? Mm, I can't remember. Yes, one way yes, or the other. that is in my notes. Um, so yeah, Andre Breton um, removes the fold from the exquisite corpse eventually oh, right yeah. he he starts making exquisite corpses where the piece of paper is laid flat and there's just another sheet of paper on top of it that gets pulled down um and laxton goes sort of fairly in depth talking about the the early exquisite corpses which have the folds in them which bear the marks of erasure and things like that um are are very much like even though they are being they are being displayed in galleries and approached as art objects are clearly also kind of produced things right almost like the draft is the first and final form in a way Mm -hmm. um 
with these later exquisite corpses, um, with the sort of turns that the, the movement takes um, later on, uh, we, we remove the fold and we start adding color. And for mm-hmm. Laxton, uh, this is a way um, that sort of Breton and his circle of surrealists, uh, I don't know how, what the best way to phrase this would be, they, they kind of like flee the implications of what they were doing earlier because it makes the, the image appear more holistic because things mm-hmm. aren't separated by folds. But also each individual contributor starts like essentially making their own little thing. And the colors are used to distract from the the sort of uh, essentially like crappy drawing that is present in most of the earlier exquisite corpses, right? They they the images themselves become more detailed and more elaborate um, in a way that uh, Laxton figures is kind of uh, antithetical to the 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 initial spirit of the game. Yeah, it's very much a transformation of if if you know we were talking about the rayograms earlier, right? The initial exquisite corpse is, is mechanically doing the same thing in that only when it is finished do you see the final product and no one can plan for the final product because no one can see it until it's done. Um, and then the addition of all these these layers, as you're talking about, the additional color and, it, and what seems like additional time given into it, they, they look a lot more coherent. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, not in that they're all the same thing, but that, that they seem to hold together better that that seems to be you know uh, if if you took more than one run at a rayogram basically is mm-hmm. is the basic critique here right yes um, so yeah this is another place and we haven't talked about this yet we'll talk about it a little bit uh when we talk about the final chapter but uh the end of the chapter ends with uh what kind of happens in every chapter which is that uh laxton talks about george bataille who was uh, kind of a, a he was a surrealist and then he was kind of a fellow traveler for a long time. Uh, and then he broke with them in a, in a very specific kind of way. I really like Bataille a lot. I've read a lot of Bataille. Um, uh, I've never really written about Bataille, although I, I, I want to. Um, but uh, Bataille gets used here as kind of the limit case for mm-hmm. all of these ideas. Because Bataille, as, as a thinker, as a philosopher, as a kind of a practitioner, uh, was always looking for the absolute limit of coherence. So can you take a story to the point where it cannot be recohered again? It can't make any sense at the end. There can't be things that happen in the same thing. Can you take experience and explode it to such a degree that no one can make sense of what occurred? That mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and so we'll talk about it in the last chapter, but that happens here too, of like thinking about Bataille's break and then thinking about Bataille's break is based on the exquisite corpse becomes more coherent because surrealism is becoming more coherent versus this other kind of figure who's antithetical to that and creates, in fact, a system of, of non-knowledge, um, right. uh, you know, impossibility. Well, who, in um, fact, like splits with this group because he's like, you, you guys are like you are doing the exact thing I don't want to do, which is returning to form. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like uh, that is yeah. that those are the terms under which he is like, I, I am through with you. <laughs> It's very funny, yeah, that kind of the, uh, uh, because, you know, one of the key terms, and this is Bataille's kind of big masterwork that people point to, is the accursed chair, uh, le part maldit. Um, and uh, um, so, like, that gets talked about, but then also l'informe, right? So the informal, unformless. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so basically what's happening, right, is that as the surrealists become more formal, that they attach themselves to form, Bataille is always in this book as this kind of like... Uh, 
you know, uh, I don't know, like villain art, like a Batman figure who's well, like I, standing on a rooftop and he's like, I don't like all this form. Well, I, the way I, I told it. it, we were like talking on Discord like uh, last week or so, I, whatever. I was talking about this book and like the way that I put it is that Bataille haunts this book mm-hmm. yeah. because there's this, there's like this, that you know, these recurring arguments about like different relationships between different surrealists and what they thought about uh, with the movement and what surrealism was and so on and so forth. And then Bataille will just like slip in for a couple paragraphs uh, long enough for Laxton to be like, here is how all of these people were basically doing all of the things that Bataille was like saying was, were pissing him off. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's almost like, like, and in the corner of the room, when they were doing the exquisite corpse, Georges Bataille was there, wagging his finger. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and it's really funny, too, that he gets, like, such a... Uh, that he gets to become such a powerful figure in this thing, because he was a big organizer of thought and, and uh, you know, really kind of important fi- figure. But he was also, like, a librarian. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he's just, like, hanging out, writing all these things. Um, so, so I like that. Um, you want to talk about chapter four? Yeah, chapter four is called Pun. Uh, pun. Yes, Pun. Um, this is the one that is about literature, most specifically. Um, and it's about mm. uh, uh, Raymond Roussel, mm-hmm. uh, who is a, um, a, a a surrealist writer who, essentially, to explain like what Roussel did, uh, he would write pairs of sentences that sounded almost homophonically uh the same right like very very similar um but that meant very different things uh and that is that is a very hard thing to explain to you verbally without being able to like read french to you to give give a really good explanation to this which i simply cannot do Mm -hmm. um but rest assured this is a thing that he did and as you might expect it's very difficult like, this is just, like, you know, it's it's not the way that language occurs to you in, in kind of your everyday conscious thought. Even if you sit down and you're like, I'm going to write an email to so-and-so, uh, you think about words and language in, in a very different way than how Roussel was doing it. Um, and he it ends would up... Be- I, I'm just trying to think of an example of like what this would be. So it, I, and I literally, since you began talking about this chapter, I've been trying to put a sentence together. So this is how hard it is. But yeah. Um, so uh, if I wrote uh, um, these two sentences, I fought the man. I sought the man. Mm-hmm. Very similar, right? In the sense that those two verbs can, could stand in for one another, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that could be a thing. Um, but, but then, so sorry. But those would be like the two sentences. I thought mm-hmm. I fought the man. I sought the man, and then Roussel would do this other move. Right. So uh, basically, he he has a, a system for generating these sentences, uh, for coming up with like pairs of words that match each other, and then like building these sentences outward. And he finally uh, publishes, I guess, a. a, a book or is it an essay uh, yeah posthumously after yeah, he dies po- yeah after he dies like so he he's not to be clear no one is like reading him and loving him he is not very <laughs> successful in his in his lifetime people do not enjoy <laughs> reading Roussel. they apparently also don't like him yeah. like as a person <laughs> <laughs> um uh, but he, he publishes posthumously a book called um, something I can't remember the precise title, but it's 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 adorably quaint. It's something like uh, how I wrote some of my books. 
Yeah, it's something like I'll look it up. I didn't write it down either, but I, yeah. I can look it up while you're talking. Uh, but basically, in in it's sort of his essay where he explains his method, right, and how he comes up with like paired words and how he parallels them and how he uh, grows these sentences. And the the big takeaway here, um, in terms of like what this book is arguing, um, for Laxton, is that uh, Roussel is foregoing the conscious content of words in order to focus on the the like the mechanism of language itself right how language sounds so taking words that sound similar but mean very different things um and then using those words to assemble sentences that sound very similar but mean very different things uh to the point that you you can't read for sense right you do not sit down and read these um read these poems and read these these stories that he writes in order really to find out like what is happening quote unquote it becomes more of a almost purely poetic process about uh feeling how the language is working in and against itself yeah i mean he he literally uh so the name of the book that he wrote is called an expose uh is called how i wrote certain of my books <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah, you're right. It's just completely quaint. But yeah, so the, so the idea is that like you have two very similar sentences, and then basically what how I wrote certain of my books, uh, what it's doing is providing basically the formula from how you extrapolate from those two sentences into like a big story poesy structure that just kind of keeps going and going and going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and and in that right, similar to all the other things we've talked about, that provides a mechanism for a kind of automatic process to kind of jumpstart mm-hmm. um, that, that this might give you maybe not access to the unconscious because the surrealists have kind of moved through that or are in the process of that, that kind of thing. Um, but they're trying to figure out ways of breaking with the forms of literature. Um, and so specifically Michelle Lieris, uh, who kind of picks up from Roussel after he dies, um, Lichera, uh, Lieris calls this anti-literature. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, specifically breaking away from that. And so Lyris is very famous for a lot of different things. He wrote a book called Manhood, which is a controversial, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's a man's theory from the 19, I think 1940s about like what it means to be ontologically a man. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's fascinating, but it goes in places you might think. Um, but Lyris is most famous for writing, uh, a series of autobiographies that are just kind of like spinning out of control uh and it took him 30 years to write something like that and mm-hmm. there's three or four volumes of it um as far as i know it wasn't in english until recently although i when we were reading this i looked it up and and it's all in english now um i used to be like really into michelle Lyris because he and bataille at this time for the you know the 1930s that we're talking about in the book they were best friends and then they were not best friends anymore um, and then Michelle Lieris just wrote <laughs> Bataille's wife regularly and they would have conversations because they were still friends <laughs> and they would like talk about George Bataille and, but they, they didn't speak to any, anyone else. Uh, you can actually get a book of their correspondence. That's really fascinating. Uh, so that's far beyond what we need to be talking about here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. So Lieris shows up here as well. Cause he also writes, um, what does he call it? Uh, the, the glossaire. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so it's like is, a glossary of surrealist idea or terms that get redefined through surrealism. Right. Like you look up a word that is a real word, but the um, the definition is like uh, 
it's not even like a joke, right? It's not like a joke definition, but it's like a pun definition. It's one of those things where you read the definition and uh, you realize like, oh, this is a definition that only makes sense if you mispronounce the word in this way or something like that, right? Like um, it's it's the same sort of principle as uh, 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 as Roussel is uh, turning, turning language um, against its kind of communicative function. Um, or at least the, the the straightforward communicative function. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, like uh, the way that it gets talked about here is uh, it's looking at these words and kind of breaking them down to find hidden or secret meanings. Mm-hmm. I can't think of anything like this in English, honestly. But but so uh, uh, examples that are put in in the book here uh, are nombre, like nombre, mm-hmm. uh, number is transformed in lombre ni which is the disavowed specter. Yes. <laughs> and so they sound they're like that cluster of words, the disavowed specter sounds like a homophone uh, to number or homonym to num- uh, number, but it's the not. The takeaway of the first half of this chapter is that it's really hard to write surrealist uh, literature in this mode. <laughs> At least that was yes. my takeaway. The second half of the chapter is about um, a different sort of pun, though. It is about uh, puns in sculpture, specifically the, the, the um, well, sculpture and also like visual art, because uh, she talks about um, Juan Miro, who does both sculpture and like uh sort of collage art uh mm-hmm. but then also uh Giacometti uh who is a, a surrealist sculptor um and so for instance uh what Moreau does is he goes through newspapers and popular circulars and things like that and he cuts out say a picture of a wheelbarrow and a couple of like from an advertisement and he cuts out you know some other things and then he puts them down on a piece of paper and then he like sketches that but he doesn't put down he doesn't put it down representationally right he doesn't take the picture of a wheelbarrow and then put it onto the page in a way that suggests it's going to be used as a wheelbarrow he like flips it vertically um and then when he starts sketching he stylizes the wheelbarrow in a certain way and then he paints a version of the thing that he sketched and it's uh when you see these uh things side by side you can watch kind of the shapes becoming more abstract or more exaggerated but nevertheless uh the 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 general outline of the shape of the wheelbarrow is still there even if if you saw sort of the the final version you would not know that he started out sketching a wheelbarrow Right. And that it came specifically Mm -hmm. from a photograph of one or, you know, a printed engraving. Um, And then Giacometti, uh, for instance, has uh, one of the big sculptures that is talked about here is called Point to the Eye, uh, which is a uh, I don't know what it's made out of. I don't know if it's ceramic or wood, but it's kind of like a, a skull. Uh, a little tiny skull sitting on a, a sort of like dowel rod above a flat plane. Um, and then there is a large uh, sort of swooping blade like shape sort of hovering in the air um, that is pointed directly to the eyes of that skull. So the when you first see it, like the, the image that you almost have is like this this massive blade swinging down into someone's eye right like that's the first thing you see uh but then also when you uh look down right when it's in a certain lighting you realize that the shadow it casts looks like the shadow of a praying mantis Mm -hmm. 
right? Um, and the praying mantis has a whole bunch of like symbolic uh, resonances for the surrealists, right? For like death and eroticism and so on and so forth. And of course, like that reads back into like sort of the, the first visual meaning that you got of the um, the very phallic knife swinging down into a skull, right? Uh so it's that, like, puns are operating not just uh, linguistically here, but also visually and materially. Um, and sort of the, the, the final uh, assessment for, for Laxton is, and this is page 245, through play, surrealism challenged and exposed the latent crisis of certainty that modernism sought to smother with its mandates to instrumentality. So touching back on this idea of um, modernism and Taylorism as the sort of really the anticipation of the optimization of experience right that mm -hmm. uh we are going to go through the city and we will redesign the city to make it totally rational and every street will have the place where it's going and every um sort of space will be used optimally uh that leaking down also into just you know the workplace and day-to-day -day life uh, this is something that surrealism is is fighting against uh, in multiple ways, and puns become uh, one method of doing that, both linguistically and visually, by uh, precisely by highlighting how contingent and ambivalent our sense experiences are. And leaning into that too, and leaning into the fact that there's no endpoint, mm -hmm. right? So, so um, it, it, you know the when we were talking about kind of the process of doing the paintings, right. Of, of the wheelbarrow, the, the important part of that is like when that painting is finished, uh, there's, there's a quote on two nineteen when he's talking, this, uh, Miro says this long thing about be being finished with something. is really just the jumping off point for another thing that you're going to start. Mm -hmm. um, and so the idea here is that there's a method and there's a kind of a mechanics. There's a set of rules. We might say certainly in, in the case of uh, uh, Roussel, right. There's a set of rules that you're following, but ultimately those rules don't take you anywhere good. So they don't take you to the final boss. They don't take you to mm -hmm. um, a better, more productive, you know, human condition in which you are fulfilled in flow. Um, they they don't take you anywhere. On on page two twenty six, uh, Laxton kind of you know sums up all of these arguments and says that these kind of rule based systems, these methodological art based systems that the surrealists are doing. Um, uh, does this. Uh, so within this context of the dawning conflation of work with productivity, playing emerges as industry's evil twin. Its forms mimic the very structures of mechanization, but it produces nothing. Um, and so these would be the terms by which Giacometti would take up Roussel's challenge with a series of inscrutable objects that materialize surrealism's ludic strategies in dimensional space. So the idea is like the, the pun, it takes a lot of work. Like, you know, the, the Lierce uh, um, uh, uh, glossary takes a lot of yeah. work to do, but it doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's null rod. You know, what does it do? It doesn't do anything. Right. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, I mean, and that's the point, right? This kind of like purposeful doing nothing. So in a lot of ways, this, um, you know, they're both Hozinga, right? Which we're going to talk about in just a, just a second. Both Hozinga, Kalwa, and then a lot of people over the past 30 years or so from where we're sitting in 2020, a lot of people re want to reclaim games and play as something that are that can be instructional, that's productive, that's powerful, that's useful, that's not unimportant. But in fact, what the Surrealists wanted to harness play for was process, was time, was um, effort into doing 
nothing. Mm-hmm. Into learning nothing. Into producing nothing. Uh, and that was, for them, a political stance against mechanization, modernity, Taylorism, all those different things. So it, it's interesting to kind of, I, I think you can read the surrealists against a whole swath of game studies critics or game studies academics and scholarship that we've read over the past, uh, you know, couple years of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think I think that's a productive and interesting thing to do. I don't think the surrealists are somehow right, but but I think that it's a, an important and interesting perspective to maybe think of that maybe play isn't all that it's been built up to be. Um, you know, I think that doing a good effort of reading the Surrealists against um, Jane McGonigal would be a productive thing for people to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because because maybe you don't need to be spending all of your free time gamifying things in order to produce better for society. Um, maybe it's a useful political thing for you to be doing to not produce anything at all mm-hmm. uh, with your leisure and your playtime. And your joy. <laughs> Well, and that really takes us into the final chapter, I think. I think it does. Yeah. Record time, fastest episode we ever done. Oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, The final chapter is really interesting to me because it is um, almost just like a companion to the introduction in a lot of ways. It it is, yeah. It's, it's in fact, even called a postlude. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. its its own kind of theoretical argument, I think. Mm -hmm. Surrealism's ludic takes aim at, uh, and this is a quote from page 246, rational agency and functionalism. Uh, like that is, uh, what surrealism at the beginning, at least is, is, uh, attempting to work against is, is the, the, the modernization, the tailorization of rational agency and functionalism that not only does everything kind of have a purpose and that purpose is accounted for in some kind of like grand, uh, calculus, um, but that human beings are, on their own, like give, like already equipped to be plugged into this system and fulfill their own rational purposes. Surrealism is working against this from the beginning. Nevertheless, historically, and we've gotten hints of this is in of of this in other parts of the book. Um, surrealism doesn't. Well, I'm not an art historian, um, and I'm not mm-hmm. a. I haven't read a lot of surrealism, so I don't know uh, if this would be fair to say, but it, surrealism, surrealism kind of becomes conservative, right? It, it has kind of a conservative turn toward the end um, where it becomes almost reduced to a kind of aesthetic, right? The reproduction of certain, like, uh, surrealism hits this point um, where things are surrealist. Like, oh man, you see that weird fleshy apple? That's a surrealist apple, Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it, it becomes um, almost too commodified, recognizable, something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. And, and certainly that's why Bataille kind of comes up again here at the end, too, mm-hmm. is to be kind of the figure who could not be folded back into that model. And so uh, Bataille and the documents group, uh, Asifal, that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, kind of carry the... Un, uh, ungraspable part of surrealism, I guess, and they carry that mm-hmm. on into the future. And I think, I mean, this is why the book ends here, I think, is that surrealism as a political project, as an aesthetic project, as, as something that's trying to harness play to change the world in some kind of way, it just kind of dead end stops here, and, or at least fragments into a bunch of different pieces. Um, right, because if if play is this thing that is always going to be hooking us back into Spielrom, into this place where 
anything that we're unconscious of might suddenly bubble up to the surface and become central and important in a way that it wasn't before. Um, the, essentially, the, the implication there is that play is a kind of obliteration of all uh, received formalism. Um, and as surrealism becomes its own aesthetic, its own kind of commodity, uh, it, it hews closer and closer to certain recurring forms or certain recurring um, concerns that necessarily mean that its relationship to play has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and she kind of gets at this, Laxton gets at this by walking through kind of four different um, ways that play becomes more uh, codified, basically, uh, you know, either around the time that the surrealists are working or immediately afterward. So uh, walks through Hazinga, uh, mm -hmm. makes a very, very, uh, you, you should go back and listen to our episode about Hazinga if you're, if you're curious about Hazinga, because Laxton makes a very similar argument to the one that we do. Yep. Um, not necessarily uh, to the point where we do, where we kind of, of um, you know, think about the anthropological project there and, and kind of think through Hazinga's anthropological racism. Um, but certainly in, in the way that Hazinga both wants play to fuel society and wants it to create very strong, uh, you know, uh, mechanisms for a civilization, civilizing, uh, mm -hmm. capability, um, and how those things like run into each other in weird ways. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's kind of a couple pages on Hazinga doing that. Um, she uses that to then move into Kawa also makes a very similar criticism to uh, of Kawa that we do. Yeah. Uh, you know, and this, this is just to say, I feel pretty good that, that an art historian who's like reading these people, uh, that when we talk about it on the show and we're trying to work through it, that we're coming to similar conclusions. Yeah, no, um, it's, it's one of those moments of like extreme vindication when you uh, like read someone and have no reason to think that they're going to agree with you, but independently of you, they arrive at more or less the same conclusion that you have. Yeah, you're like, okay, whew, I read the book right. <laughs> uh, or, you know, I, I read the book in a coherent way that, that makes sense to, to other people. Um, and, and the reason I say that is I think that sometimes in our episodes on those, we were frictional with the way that Game Studies talks about these authors, and sometimes we weren't. But it's interesting to see someone from outside of Game Studies who is not in conversation with Game Studies in any significant way other than really talking with these or talking about these two authors Um that that person, by not being kind of in the world of game studies, is able to think through kind of larger systems that these fit into. Um, it, it's just, a, I think it's a refreshing take on mm -hmm. on those kinds of things, where for the most part, we see the same kind of information, you know, magic circle, the different categories of games, that kind of stuff. We see that replicated a lot in game studies, and I think there's more there to talk about if you really need to right. talk well, about and, it. Right, and because the, the actual concern that is animating this chapter is um, when we think about theories of play, um, is... Are we theorizing play as this kind of constant, like this, this uh, making space for this constant eruption of the new or the recontextualized, right? Is it Spielram or is it this kind of didactic model of here is what you do and you're kind of, you're doing almost um, a fake activity in order to get some sort of real validation, yeah, uh, I mean, she specifically cites Hozinga, right? Or, or this is her summary of Hozinga is to say, quote, he fashions play as an idealist representation that performs a didactic role, meaning yes. that when play happens, it is producing something in you as a player. 
And that's its sole purpose is to, I mean, it's fundamentally a conservative model, right? That, that play exists to take something that existed before you came onto the scene and then communicate it to you. But yeah, so this idea that, that, that play uh, is, is meant to give you a prepackaged thing that already exists, right? Chivalry, whatever that Huizinga is talking about. Um, as opposed to exactly what you're saying about Spielram, the idea that it's a kind of a meeting space where uh, the culture you live in runs into the infinite possibility of, of what happens when things run into each other. This kind of chaos that, uh, that modernity can kind of pull new things out of. Um, and Kawa and Huizinga, they're not really interested in new things on some mm-hmm. fundamental way. Uh, they are interested in, in um, may, of being sure that we can think, think well about how the old things get communicated to us, mm-hmm. which seems different to me. Yeah. Um, talks about two other people too. Uh, ben Veniste, um, who seems very interesting as a structural linguist from around the same time period. Um, ends up making similar kind of arguments to Kawa and Hozinga, but but perhaps a little bit more uh, open or perhaps a little bit more progressive. Um, uh, basically lays out, uh, according to Laxton, the ideas that show up later in Derrida's structure, sign, and play, mm-hmm. uh, which is fascinating. But sadly, it is not in English, so uh, I can't. I, I I don't know anything about it. Well, that's unfortunate. The the thing that is very evocative for me um, from from this discussion is. Uh, Laxton saying that Benveniste, uh, final, like one of the the key points that he makes is that sort of contra Huizinga, who uh, you know thinks of play or yes, actually it's when he's talking about play as as set aside from reality. Um, Benveniste, the way he reorients this is that play does not aspire to usefully alter reality. That does not mean it cannot alter reality, uh, but it does not necessarily aim to do it usefully. Um, there's mm-hmm. no programmatic way in which play can influence reality, um, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, if, if someone, uh, I, I want to say, if someone has an English uh, copy of that, I, I looked and I couldn't find it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I, I could just be bad at looking for it. So if someone has an English copy of it or has a translation of of uh, this Veniste piece, um uh, you know, very cool. I'd love to see it. If you want to translate it, that'd be even better. <laughs> that Thanks. would sound great. Uh, yeah. Um, but obviously no one should have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then one, one other person. Yeah. Breton comes back. Yeah. Uh, and he comes back specifically to talk to us about another game, a little mm-hmm. party game called one in the other, uh, which is a game where like one person, so it's you and a bunch of people in a room. One person has to choose an object, uh, and or I think maybe they you know draw it from maybe you you draw it out of a hat or something. But you have an object that you know, and everyone else in the room is trying to guess what your object is, and they'll say something like, um, "Well, so let's say that uh, your object is a maple leaf." And someone asks you, is your object, and what they, the the questions that people ask you are like very direct questions like, is your object uh, a table? Um, And your response would be something like, my object is a table for a caterpillar. (laughs) 
Hmm. Right. Like you, you have to like whatever, whatever um, the the interlocutors throw at you, you have to uh, you have to validate it, and then you have to come up with some way in which your object could serve as that kind of thing in some context, uh, and it becomes a kind of like weird um, like riddle exercise, right? Some sort of yes and perhaps. Mm. Yes, 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 yes. Some sort of improvisational game. <laughs> uh, and some sort of UCB theater. <laughs> well, it, it, you're, mm. you're, you're really uh, uh, selling it, uh, Cameron. Um, <laughs> essentially, this improv game, uh, is for uh, Laxton's reading of Breton, at least, is important because it is a kind of demystified ritual. Yeah. Um, and this hits at... Uh, this issue of the sacred, which is also a, a, a question that runs through Kelwa and Benveniste, apparently, and also Huizinga. Uh, the, the sacred as kind of uh, the collection of rituals that bind society together. Um, we can, this, you know, the, the very clear example here is sort of the, the, the vulgar understanding of what medieval Europe was like. Um, where everyone is like bound together into uh, the whole of the Catholic Church and everyone has sort of the same rituals that they're uh, carrying out and so on and so forth. Um, this one in the other game is important because it takes the the essential uh, social mechanism of ritual and it does the things that we've been talking about this entire discussion. Um, it sort of does away with the point. Right. It's just like we're just comparing things. Right. It's it's like uh, the the endless ability to connect two distinct thoughts uh, through a kind of uh, analogic capability of language. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit cheeky when I talk about improv, but also, I mean, I think that that's another really kind of good example of how this exact same process that happened to surrealism when the mechanism itself is theoretically gives a politics or gives a particular kind of outcome that you want that that mechanism can be absorbed or arrested or brought into normal systems so for example huge number of comedians that we experience now in our day-to-day -day lives of watching tv or listening to podcasts or whatever a lot of those people come out of improv comedy like a huge mm -hmm. number of those people in fact and actually a fairly small number of places of improv comedy um and these, they, they are playing surrealist games. Their comedic training is basically playing surrealist games of association, of building on additional content, all that kind of stuff. And that can be wholly absorbed within like the reason reasoning system that we have in, you know, our late, in our post-modernity. Uh -oh. mm -hmm. um, and so those things can be, those, all of those things are absorbed into the world that we live in right now. That what at one point could have produced nothing has been arrested to produce, uh, you know, capital. I mean, it produces huge outcomes, mm -hmm. um, which is also what Laxton says about the theory itself, right? I mean, she says that it ultimately produces uh, the postmodernism and play theories that we live with today. And right. by postmodernism, I mean postmodern, you know, literary theory or or uh, political theory. Mm -hmm. Right. The 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 sort of what she calls groundless ambivalence uh, mm -hmm. that is sort of the starting point for all of this surrealist thought. Um, it, it comes out of the world of avant-garde avant art and uh, sort of that kind of weird artistic production, artistic philosophical production, and it becomes, you know, the 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 starting point for Derrida, 
and mm-hmm. how Derrida thinks about the the way language works, right? As as again the groundless ambivalence um, and the the play of the signifier and things like that. Uh, so there's that there's one interesting sort of claim here made at the end that essentially the surrealists set the ground for postmodernism in this way. Yeah, and and what I think is interesting here too is that like there are basically you know she kind of says there are two branches that happen here because of. The surrealists in the way they think about play and then these thinkers like Hozinga and Calois and Benveniste who are responding to it and creating kind of theoretical systems around it. On one hand, you have groundlessness, that kind of thing, uh, play as producing the world around it that gives us Derrida mm-hmm. and people like that, Deleuze. Um, uh, you know, those are not the same, but they have a similar relationship to surrealism, I think, mm-hmm. Uh in that way. And then on the other hand, you have what I would say, you know, is the lineage of game studies specifically, which looks to Huizinga, looks to Kawa, and begins to say, um, how is it that play and, and particular rule sets produce certain kinds of people mm-hmm. um, and, and certain subject positions and certain ways of being in the world? And how specifically can you augment those things? How do you turn the dials on the uh the mechanism of production that is play in order to create certain types of people Mm -hmm. and that's that's game design like just straight up i mean you have to believe that in order to be a game designer right um well maybe you don't have to that's flow right like Mm -hmm. flow is the thing that you're supposed to be designing for you're supposed to be turning those dials until you get the the game system the ludic that is going to make everyone become some sort of like I don't know, non-conscious rock climber. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, and that's not saying like, oh, everyone who is a game designer is like hopelessly compromised. I'm not in no way saying that, but I think there's a real radical difference. And all you got to do is play the games in order to figure it out um, between something like the last of us two, right. Which has months and months of um, player feedback that are built into it, uh, years of game development time, all of that, and then uh, maybe Bees Wing, right, by Jack Kingspooner, which is a game that is about wandering around in a small village. Um, mm-hmm. You know, those those things are both games, um, and, but one is uh, deeply tuned. Uh, it believes that uh, people have certain qualities that they enjoy in a game and it is doubling down on those from a narrative perspective, from a uh, game design perspective, from a uh, aesthetic perspective, just what the thing looks like. You can see the money on the screen, uh, as, as we say about film sometimes. Um, and and Bees Wing is just not interested in that, right? It's, it, it is telling uh, this kind of story in a easily accessible but not in your face kind of way. It's very ambivalent about what you take from it you know, it, it, it's not um, making sure that you stay hooked for the full 40 hours or whatever, you know. Um, you can complete Beeswing in, I think, about four minutes <laughs> if you wanted to. Um, so, uh, you know, the, I, I think what, what's interesting here is that the two kind of strains of, of uh, pure mechanical consumption of play and then the ambivalence of play, both of those things still exist in our game's culture. It's not like one thing won. Um, both are, are represented, but one obviously is a huge part of our globalized multi-billion dollar, uh, entertainment industry. And one is relegated to itch.io and rarely talked about. Um, Mm -hmm. I think if you wanted to talk about the interesting connections between the now and the then, or, you know, our moment and the surrealist moment, I don't think you would be well off to look at the last of us too. Um, 
I think you would be well off to look at something like Beeswing. I think if you want to talk about play and how play functions and how play can produce new kinds of ways of being in the world that are perhaps frictional to our ideologies or our ways of existing, then you're not going to look to something like The Last of Us 2. You're always going to look like something like a Jack King Spooner game. And if it sounds like I'm a broken record trying to get you to play a Jack King Spooner game, it's because I am. <laughs> you, should go, <laughs> you should go play his games. Uh, they're, they're, they're quite good and, and you know... Uh, that's a name that's not talked about enough. The fact that there's not an academic uh, subfield of Jack King Spooner studies mm-hmm. is is a problem. <laughs> I mean, in fact, we're addressing this by rebranding as Jack King Spooner Studies Study Buddies. Yeah, there you go. That's yeah. our well. We did. Yeah, this is our twenty fourth episode. We've done it for two years, and now we're looking at two years of just playing Jack King Spooner games. So yep. I hope everyone is into that. Uh, you can find them on itch.io. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah. I mean, uh, I think that that's kind of, you know, the, the end of the book. On 268, uh, she, she, she writes, quote, From the 1950s forward, the discursive field would, uh, would grasp play as a signifier of sociological, psychological, and representational indeterminacy rather than as a metaphor for autonomy, originality, authenticity, and mastery. Um, and what's interesting about that is I think that, as, as we're talking about, I think that's flipped a little bit today. I think we are back into a mode of thinking about play as mastery. And um, I think it's maybe a, a responsibility of people who are thinking in the field and thinking about a theory of play to, to maybe back off of that some. And maybe, maybe try to think more about ambivalence and indeterminacy. Mm-hmm. Do you have any final thoughts, Michael? No, I think I'm good. <laughs> Do we want to answer our piece of uh, of uh, viewer mail? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, and because I, well, our, our episodes are usually too long for this to even happen. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> if you ever have any questions for us and you want us to take literal months to respond, uh, you can write to us at gamestudiesstudybuddies at gmail.com and... At some point, we will we will try to answer the, whatever question you have. So yeah, let's let's uh, take this piece of reader mail. So this is from uh, Michael G. Uh, in April of 2020. Mm-hmm. So shout out to you, Michael G. Sorry about the long delay here. Um, it's really not that long though. All, all told, it's only two two months. Two months. Yeah. Uh, you know, it could be worse. Um, <laughs> It says, this piece of your mail says, Hello, Michael and Cameron. I had an interest in learning more about Gilles Deleuze and his philosophy ever since I started exploring surrealism in literature, but listening to your podcast has given me the final push towards committing to sitting down and studying him in earnest. I have a copy of Deleuze's Spinoza, Spinoza, Practical Philosophy on the way, uh, and I'm wondering if you have any advice on what text to seek out afterwards. Any help would be appreciated. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Best, Michael G. What do, what do you think, Michael? Are you a, uh, do you have a, you have a good pocket to Lowe's explainer in you? Um, so my experience with Deleuze is hopelessly mediated by the fact that I'm an early modernist. And so I come to Deleuze having, like, I come to Deleuze through Spinoza. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that if you really want to understand Deleuze, you have to read Spinoza is really bad advice. That is not, in fact, what I would, what I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say that it helped me understand Deleuze having worked through Spinoza first. Um, that's not at all helpful, probably for for Michael G, um, unless he happens to have read all of his Spinoza. Uh, but that was one thing that ended up being very helpful for me. And I would also say maybe um, 
Stephen Shaviro's book Without Criteria, uh, mm-hmm. which is not only about Deleuze, but is, I think, very good at putting Deleuze in conversation with uh, several other thinkers in a way that um, illuminates his thinking, right? I'm, 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 I'm very much a comparatist in that way. It's usually very helpful for me if I'm trying to understand someone new uh, is figuring out how do they not think like so-and-so. Mm-hmm. Right. Or mm-hmm. where where does Deleuze agree with Kant and where does he disagree? Right. Because I, I have a pretty, you know, good grasp of Kant, like enough for to understand when the when the differences are meaningful. Right. It's that sort of thing. Um, uh, what, what's interesting to, to, to note, uh, I mean, I agree. I think that Shaviro book's great uh, without criteria is, is really good. Um, what, what's difficult about Deleuze, right, is he has kind of like big standard books that are important for understanding his thought in itself. So those are books like The Logic of Sense, uh, Difference in Repetition, and really those two are, are the kind of the big ones. Difference in Repetition is huge. I think it is very difficult, if not impossible, to just dive into Difference in Repetition and like know what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reading either of the Spinoza books is fine. The, the Spinoza Practical Philosophy is one, and then there's Expressionism and Philosophy, which is his other much larger book on Spinoza. I think those are okay uh, in that they give you what Deleuze thinks about Spinoza. Because the important part about Spinoza is that he wrote a whole bunch of monographs about individual thinkers. He's got a book on Hume. He's got a book mm-hmm. on Kant. He's got a book on uh, Leibniz. He's got a book on, um, oh, I can see the cover of it. But he's got a, a, a bunch of them. Um, and so what, what happens when you're reading a Deleuze monograph on someone else, he's got a book on Francis Bacon, the painter, um, is that you are getting uh, a version of that. Part. It's almost like Deleuze is like made a little puppet, made like a Muppet of Spinoza. And you are seeing Spinoza being rewritten in Deleuze's image. Uh, precisely precisely right this is actually the point that i wanted to make when i was talking about the spinoza stuff (laughs) um and i'm sorry i've interrupted you but when you come at yeah coming coming at spinoza as an early modernist means uh i have all of uh this you know background context about like the state of religion in in 17th century europe um and all of these various tensions uh these social tensions and these institutions and and various um epistemologies that spinoza himself is working through and so to read spinoza historically um as a historicist right to understand what spinoza might have been saying in the 17th century Uh, is what I would do professionally. And at Mm -hmm. the same time, uh, when you look at what Deleuze does when he reads Spinoza, like that tells you something about how Deleuze thinks. uh, If you have kind of your understanding of Spinoza in your back pocket, you can be like, okay, I know Spinoza is really talking about (laughs) <laughs> like this this particular anxiety that uh you would have about anabaptists right <laughs> um and deleuze can take that and uh using kind of his own philosophical orientation right he he um makes spinoza into an organ for a kind of deleuzian way of thinking absolutely and so he doesn't really care about what spinoza i mean he might in an abstract sense right but uh Deleuze's intent in writing a book on Spinoza is not to elucidate really what Spinoza thinks. It is to turn Spinoza into a kind of proxy for Deleuze. You know, Spinoza as a thinker stands in for whatever Deleuze happens to be thinking. Um, which means I, a lot of people like read Deleuze's Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche book in order to, to be like, what's Nietzsche all about? 
And that's mm-hmm. not a good, that's not a good advice. That's bad. <laughs> like that's going to hurt you in the long run. Um, but what I would say is, and, and I think that this is something similar to what you said, Michael, but just phrased differently, is that if Deleuze wrote a book on someone you already know pretty well, then you should read that book. Because when you start reading the book and going, well, actually, Spinoza didn't really say that. Or if you start reading the book and you say, well, I don't think that's really what Francis Bacon's paintings are all about. You're seeing what Deleuze is doing as a thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Deleuze is not a good introduction to other thinkers, but those other thinkers are really good introductions to Deleuze if you know them already. So if you read a couple of Nietzsche books, maybe read the Nietzsche book and then figure out what Deleuze is doing there. If you've read some Foucault, I personally think that Deleuze's book on Foucault is really good. It's pretty short. It's really, um, it, it's really well written in the sense that Foucault, uh, it, it, uh, Foucault is difficult as a thinker, but I don't think he's necessarily difficult to read because you can always outline Foucault very well. Mm-hmm. Foucault wrote in outline form. If you write your topic sentences for each you know, individual paragraph as you work through a Foucault book, you are going to create a very good outline of a book. Um, and so like the meat of it might be hard to work through, um, but you can kind of structurally work your way out of it. Uh, the same thing is happens for Deleuze's book on Foucault. You can outline your way out of that book um, to get to some principles. If, Michael G, to return to this email, if you are talking about surrealism, you might be more familiar with uh, Francis Bacon, who's not a surrealist, but kind of is in that mode and certainly is an inheritor of surrealism. And so it might help you to see how Deleuze talks about paintings so that you can go and look at paintings um, and, and see how he does it. Uh, there are actually, if you, if you give it to Google, there are quite a few like Google drives and things like that where people have gone and found all the paintings that he talks about and then put them online. Um, apparently the original French version of that book had all the paintings in it, but the English translation does not. Um, yeah. yeah, it's very inconvenient. <laughs> Uh, but so that would be my advice. If you want to learn about Deleuze, uh, I think uh, learning about him via difference is important in the sense of figure out what you already know. Did he talk about that at some point? Go read the thing and figure out where your differences lie. Basically, you know, I've been studying Deleuze for for uh, 16 years. I, you know, I can I can not give you the day and date, but I can give you a pretty good year. I've been studying Deleuze for 16 years. Um, I would not say that I have universal mastery of Deleuze, um, but I have a pretty good understanding of, of, of his work top to bottom. And sadly, I don't think any individual book gave me that, right? I, I can't point you to, to single one, one thing. I will say that there are some secondary pieces of literature that are very good. Stephen Shaviro's book that you already talked about, Michael, and then Claire Cullabrook's book on Deleuze, um, I think is very helpful for doing that. Although my advice and the point of this podcast too, my advice always is, Go back and read the original thing. Don't rely on secondary literature to tell you what it is because you, uh, you know, you're getting someone else's opinion and perspective on it, and it's uh, helpful to read the original source. It's precisely why you don't read Deleuze in order to understand Spinoza. Exactly. It's exactly. I never would have thought to say that. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah. Uh. But yeah. So game studies study buddies at gmail.com. Feel free to 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 shoot us an email. Questions, comments, concerns, any of that. We, we love that. Um, Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. You got anything to plug? I do not. 
You can find me twitter.com slash range touch. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support us. If you enjoy listening to this two hour and a half show or somewhere around there, mm-hmm. uh, you know, think about how much time it took for us to, to read this book and then talk about it. And then if you're not chipping in a buck or two, think about doing that. It would legitimately very much help us out. It's down in the description below patreon.com slash range touch. And if you want to uh, listen to the show that Michael and I do, where we talk about the fallout games, uh, perhaps not in as much length, as this show, but certainly in as much detail and, and big capital T big thoughts. Um, uh, you can go check that out at youtube.com slash range touch, as well as a bunch of other things that we have done. And we're going to have a new podcast coming out soon. Yes. In the next, next six weeks or so. Yes. We will see uh, within the next couple months, the, the arrival of just King things, the new show where you and I are going to read every Stephen King book in publication order. And talk I got about my copy them. of Carrie right here, right on my <laughs> desk. It's it's uh, the new copy of Carrie, new cover of Carrie. Not good. Is it the I'm one? Just... I haven't gotten mine yet. Is it the one that has like a skull carnation on it? Yes, it yeah. is. It's purple. No good. No good. Uh, not not my uh. favorite. But anyway, yeah. If you if you enjoyed listening to this and was like, and you were like, wow, I wonder what's going to happen if these guys discussed uh, Stephen King's novel Carrie. Uh, soon you will know and the important point to make is that podcast is happening because of the patreon because we uh we had a goal we were going to make a show when we reached that goal and here it is uh so yeah. if you want us to see you if you want to see us diversify our content or talk about more types of books uh the, supporting the patreon is a great way to ensure that that happens mm-hmm. i'm gonna watch the movie for carrie so i'll even talk about some movies a little bit probably nice. are you gonna watch are you gonna watch all three movies uh, I didn't know there were three. Oh, because there's a sequel. There's the, no, 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 uh, no. Oh, on. No. so there is there. There are four movies. If we want to be technical, there mm-hmm. is the the original film De Palma. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, there is a made for TV movie remake that I believe stars. Uh, um, it's, it's not Brittany Murphy because I think Brittany Murphy is in the one that ends up being a sequel that is ostensibly a sequel to the De Palma film. Huh. Um, but there's a made-for-TV remake that has someone in it who I don't remember. Um, and then there is the uh, other remake that has... I don't remember who plays Carrie, but Julianne Moore plays uh, her mother. Uh, that, My cat uh, is I know screaming. what you're talking about. And then there's a sequel to that, too, right? I don't think so. Okay, maybe not. Well, this is the kind of uh, free will and thoughts where we don't know anything that you can look forward yeah. to. <laughs> no, we'll look, them, we'll, look, we'll look up facts like this before we do that. This is just us off the dome. Not mm-hmm. knowing anything, we'll we'll definitely uh, tactically not know things on the show. Uh, but if you if you want to check that out, uh, that will you can find out about that on the Patreon. You can find that that out on Twitter. Um, but uh, but yeah, we'll be back in a month. We don't know what our next book is, do we? Uh, no, we don't. We'll talk okay. about it. Yeah, we'll talk about it. Keep an eye on the old uh, on the old Twitter for that, and uh, you can you can hear us again next month. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll uh, see you on the next one. Michael, what's the catchphrase to take us out? Remember, everyone, the social is predicated upon its exclusions. (laughs) 